peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Then assassins. It has always been six. In the spring of that same year, bones were still being uncovered at Fox Hollow Farm. Chapter 17, Patsies and Assassins. It has always been my theory that for every person arrested and charged with multiple homicide there are probably a good five more out there. Theodore Robert Bundy I am the dark and ugly netherworld where violent crime and covert operations collide. There appear to be two general categories into which a large majority of those we label serial killers can be sorted, controlled assassins, and controlled patsies. In this chapter, we will look at what could be described as textbook cases of both of these recurring archetypes. We begin with the case of the man whom the New York Times referred to in December 2001 as the first of America's modern serial killers, Albert Henry DeSalvo, otherwise known as the Boston Strangler. Nearly 40 years after the infamous murders, and almost 30 after the purported killer was permanently silenced, it is now being acknowledged by some in the law enforcement community that DeSalvo was innocent. What is not acknowledged, even today, is that DeSalvo was deliberately framed to take the fall for the crimes. The story generally put forth by those who acknowledge DeSalvo's innocence is that he willingly confessed to crimes that he did not commit in the belief that he could make a good deal of money from his notoriety. The facts of the case, however, suggest otherwise. At the other end of the spectrum are men like Arthur Shawcross, who began killing for the United States Army in 1968, the year after DeSalvo was convicted. It was nearly a quarter century later before Shawcross was first convicted of homicide. There is little question that he was guilty of a number of violent crimes, first in the late 1960s, then again in the early 1970s, and yet again in the late 1980s. There is some question though as to whether Arthur was acting alone during his various murder sprees. The third alleged serial killer profiled here is Danny Rowling, a man whose story has parallels to both Shawcross and DeSalvo. Albert Henry DeSalvo, the purported Boston Strangler, ranks as one of the most infamous of all the serial killers, despite the inconvenient fact that, in the four decades since the notorious murders were committed, no one has been able to produce a shred of evidence indicating that DeSalvo ever killed anyone. The task of manufacturing a case against DeSalvo was largely led by a legendary attorney by the name of F. Lee Bailey, who received a considerable amount of help from a cast of characters whose surnames should be familiar to any serious student of U.S. politics, names like McNamara, Donovan, Mellon, Moynihan and Bryan. Frank DeSalvo, Albert's father, regularly beat his wife and kids with his fists, as well as with belts and a pipe. He once reportedly pulled a gun on his wife. Another time he reportedly broke her fingers one by one as her young son watched in horror. Frank was also fond of bringing prostitutes home and having his way with them in front of his children. On one rather noteworthy occasion, he actually sold his kids as slaves to a farmer in Maine.
Though the details of that transaction remain murky, family friends and social workers have confirmed that the incident did occur. The boy's mother spent nearly six months searching for her sons. Albert was first arrested in 1943, at the age of 13, for assault and battery with intent to commit robbery. He was sentenced to a reformatory, but his sentence was suspended. Later that same year he was again arrested on the same charge and again convicted. That time his sentence was enforced. He was paroled from the reformatory on October 26, 1944. Two years later, he wound up back again for making unlawful use of a car. Early in 1947, he was again paroled. In September 1948, Albert was inducted into the U.S. Army. He was just 17 years old and on parole, but Uncle Sam did not seem to mind. DeSalvo first served from September 16, 1948 to June 25, 1951, when he was honorably discharged. Strangely though, he re-enlisted the very next day and served from June 26, 1951 to February 15, 1956, when he was again honorably discharged. Much of that seven-and-a-half-year stretch was served in West Germany, where Gary Heidnick was subjected to MKUltra experimentation not too many years later, and where Jeffrey Dahmer later served as well. While in Germany, Albert reportedly mastered the art of hand-to-hand -hand combat and became a boxing champion. On January 5, 1955, while still in the military, DeSalvo was arrested in New Jersey on suspicion of carnally abusing a nine-year-old girl. The case was never prosecuted. In March, he was arrested again, for loitering. For that offense, he was fined. Two years later, in the spring of 1957, Albert spent two months in a VA hospital, where he reportedly was treated for an unspecified problem with his left shoulder. In the early months of 1958, he was arrested repeatedly for the crime of breaking and entering. The first arrest was on January 8, the second on February 15, and the third on April 18. He was convicted all three times, and each time he received a suspended sentence. Three years later, on March 17, 1961, DeSalvo was again arrested for breaking and entering. Once in custody, he reportedly began spontaneously confessing to a wave of notorious sexual assaults that had been dubbed the Measuring Man attacks. He was promptly sent to Westboro State Hospital for a psychiatric examination. On May 3rd, he went to trial on multiple counts of breaking and entering an assault and battery. He was convicted of the charges, but in a rather remarkable turn of events, the judge opted to sentence him to just two years for each offense, with all of the sentences to be served concurrently. Even more remarkably, that same judge later reduced the already bizarrely lenient sentence and in April 1962, Albert was released after serving less than one year for his multiple convictions. Two months later, a 56-year-old Latvian immigrant named Anna Slezers became the first victim of the Boston Strangler. Anna was strangled with her housecoat cord and had a gaping laceration to the back of her head. She had been sexually assaulted with an unidentified object and her apartment had been searched. As would be the case with all the murder scenes, there was no sign of forced entry, indicating that the killers may very well have been known to the victims. Nina Nichols, age 68, was the second victim. Nichols was strangled with two nylon stockings. Helen Blake, 65, was likewise strangled with two stockings on the very same day. Both women had dried blood in their ears and both suffered genital lacerations from a sexual assault. Just a week and a half later, on July 11, 1962, Margaret Davis was found dead in a hotel room. She had been manually strangled. Other than the victim's age, 60, there was no indication that her death was connected to the deaths of the other women. 
Margaret had checked into the hotel with an unidentified man. The couple had registered as Mr. and Mrs. Byron Spinney. Davis was also known to use the names Ethel Johnson, Anne Cunningham, Winnie Hughes, and Toby. Exactly what her business was with her male escort is largely a matter of speculation, but there is little doubt that that is what got her killed. After a brief lull, the killings resumed on August 19th. The victim was Ida Erga, who was strangled both manually and with a pillowcase. Like the earlier victims, Erga had genital injuries, but unlike the others, the 75-year-old woman was left posed, her splayed legs facing the front door. Just two days later, Jane Sullivan was strangled and left partially submerged in her bathtub. She had two stockings around her neck and matted blood on her scalp. The 67-year-old was found on her knees with her posterior jutting out of the tub. The next victim, Modeste Freeman, was found on October 13th. She hardly fit the victim profile that had been previously established. Freeman was just 37 and was the first black victim. She was both strangled and brutally bludgeoned, her head reduced to a bloody pulp. She was also the first victim found outdoors, in a yard. She had a wooden stick protruding from her vagina and an alarmingly high blood alcohol level. Her body was nude when it was discovered. On December 5th, the killer claimed his next victim, another black girl, this one just 20 years old. She was found with a stocking and a half-slip around her neck. There was no sign of genital injuries, but there was a semen stain on the rug. It was left by someone other than Albert DeSalvo. By that time, the city of Boston was in a full-scale panic. The killings of the young black victims sent a clear signal that all women, regardless of age or ethnicity, were fair game. The demand for dogs, locks and guns skyrocketed. Patricia Bissett was the next victim claimed by the Strangler on December 31, 1962. Like the previous two victims, Bissett was young, just 23, but like the earlier victims, she was white. She had a blouse and three stockings tied around her neck, and her bed covers were discreetly pulled up to her chin. She had had intercourse and showed signs of injury to her rectum. She was also carrying a one-month-old fetus. On March 6, 1963, Mary Brown became the next strangler victim. Like the first batch of victims, Brown was in her 60s. Unlike the others, her death was attributed to bludgeoning, though she was also strangled and stabbed. She was found with degenerated sperm in her vagina and a kitchen utensil buried up to the handle in her left breast. The next victim, killed on May 8, was stabbed 17 times in and around her left breast in what was described as a ritual pattern. Beverly Simons was also slashed four times about her neck, around which a scarf and two nylon stockings were tied, though it was the knife wounds that killed her. There was no evidence of rape or sexual assault. After a four-month break, the purported strangler struck again. The victim was Evelyn Corbin, whose age was listed as either 51 or 58. She had two stockings around her neck and one around her left ankle. There was blood on the scene, including in both of the victim's ears. Semen was found in her mouth, and traces of dried semen were found elsewhere. Two and a half months later, 23-year-old Joanne Graff was strangled with a leotard leg and two stockings. She had been raped and her vagina was lacerated and bloody. The final victim was Mary Sullivan, the youngest at just 19. She was killed on January 4, 1964. Her death scene was the most gruesome of them all. She had two scarves and a stocking around her neck and a broom handle protruding from her vagina. Her breasts had been mauled. She was posed in a sitting position on her bed with fresh semen dripping from her mouth. A macabre greeting card was propped up by her foot. 
there were no further murders attributed to the Boston Strangler, even though Albert DeSalvo remained free for ten months after the death of Sullivan. Two weeks after the discovery of Sullivan's body, Massachusetts Attorney General Edward Brooke took over the investigation of all 14 murders, which had been being handled by five different city police departments and three district attorney's offices. Brooke assembled a task force and assigned Assistant Attorney General John Bottomley to lead it, even though Bottomley had no experience whatsoever with criminal law. Considering that the Strangler case was arguably the most high-profile criminal case in the state's history, it was a very unusual assignment. Bottomley had been involved in telepathic experiments conducted at NASA. Such experiments, it should be noted, were and are one of many covers used to veil various aspects of the intelligence community's MKUltra program. Bottomley's mother was said to be fascinated with especially. At one point in the investigation, the task force leader brought in famed psychic Peter Herkovs, who a few years later helped Roman Polanski investigate the Tate murders. Herkovs identified a suspect who had, it was claimed, already been considered by the task force. The suspect subsequently voluntarily, according to reports, committed himself to a mental hospital and was quickly forgotten. According to some reports, he later surfaced at Bridgewater State Hospital. Among those working under Bottomley were a medical, psychiatric committee and special officer James Mellon of the Boston Police Department. Also deeply involved in the investigation was the Boston Police Department's new commissioner, Edmund McNamara, who had formerly worked for the FBI. John Donovan, the former chief of the BPD's homicide squad, was the top detective on the case. Seven months into the investigation, Brooks' office wrote up a progress report that stated, at an early stage of the coordinated deliberations it was concluded that certain homicides bore little relationship to the so-called stranglings or to each other. That rather self-evident fact was later swept under the rug. In the fall of 1964, Albert DeSalvo was arrested and charged with various crimes that he allegedly committed during a series of sexual assaults in the state of Connecticut. Those crimes, dubbed the Green Man Assaults, had been perpetrated during the ten-month period following the death of Mary Sullivan. We are to believe then that DeSalvo, having successfully committed 14 murders, decided to stop killing and instead cross state lines to commit sexual assaults. Albert was arraigned on November 3, 1964 for the Green Man attacks. He was not, at that time, among the more than 300 strangler suspects listed by the task force. There was no evidence of any kind that suggested that he was involved in any way with the brutal killings. Three days after his arraignment, he was sent to Bridgewater State Hospital, where he remained until December 10, when he was sent back to jail. On January 14, 1965, DeSalvo was again sent to Bridgewater. Four days later, he was joined there by a man named George Nasser, who had been arrested for a murder committed on September 29, 1964. The victim had been shot six times at close range and then stabbed in the back. The getaway car used in the crime had reportedly been stolen from near prestigious MIT in Cambridge and later abandoned adjacent to the exclusive Phillips Academy in Andover. The vehicle was registered to an unidentified Navy lieutenant, as were the two handguns found under the front seat. Nasser had previously served 16 years of a life sentence he received for an earlier murder conviction. He had been paroled in 1961. Following his release, he reportedly worked as a reporter and a hospital attendant, and also taught Sunday school and occasionally was allowed to take over the pulpit to deliver sermons. In his free time, he reportedly participated in between 17 and 30 contract murders during a period of gang warfare in Boston. 
Nasser is frequently described as a genius and a master manipulator who quickly took Albert under his wing at Bridgewater. So tight was his control over DeSalvo that Albert's own family complained that they were unable to visit him without Nasser being present. A committee was quickly formed to raise legal fees for Nasser. His innocence was loudly proclaimed by his supporters, including a minister and a local talk radio host. As legal counsel, Nasser retained F. Lee Bailey, already a national figure at the age of 31. The flamboyant attorney and former Marine pilot was known to carry a gun and enormous rolls of cash. It was Nasser who purportedly first obtained a confession from Albert DeSalvo. He then arranged for DeSalvo a meeting with Bailey, even though Lee was not DeSalvo's attorney of record. That was only the first breach of legal ethics by Bailey. There would be many more. Bailey promptly contacted John Donovan and obtained classified information on the case, purportedly to check the veracity of Albert's confessions, though it appears that the details of the murders were in fact fed to DeSalvo by Bailey and Nasser, with assistance from CIA-connected hypnotist William Jennings Bryan III, who was brought on board by Bailey on the spring equinox. Bryan's questions to DeSalvo while under hypnosis were loaded with incriminating details of the crimes. The confessions that resulted from this collaboration between Bailey, Nasser and Brian, using information supplied by Donovan, were taped by Bailey and turned over to the police. They were, to put it bluntly, blatantly fraudulent. Many of the crime scene details recounted by Albert, who was said to have a photographic memory, were incorrect. No physical evidence corroborated his accounts and no witnesses could place Albert near any of the crime scenes or connect him to any of the killings. The problem was not that there were no witnesses available, there were in fact a number of them, but none who identified Albert as the man they had seen. At least three of the witnesses described the suspect as a light-skinned black man with combed back hair. None of the composite sketches created from witness descriptions resembled DeSalvo. Any reasonably skilled interrogator, through a thorough questioning of the suspect, could have quickly revealed the confessions for the shams that they were. No police, however, were ever allowed to question DeSalvo, who was kept under constant guard. On April 8, 1966, just three weeks before Anton Lavi declared the dawn of the Age of Satan, Assistant Attorney General Bottomley abruptly resigned his post, taking with him the original confession tapes. He quickly went to work as an attorney for DeSalvo's ex-wife, and also contracted out his services to Fox as a consultant on the screen version of Gerald Frank's The Boston Strangler. Bailey had convinced DeSalvo to sign an agreement with Frank to pen the disinformational book, which declared Albert guilty of not only the stranglings but of some 2,000 rapes as well. Bailey served as a witness to the signing of the release, and Bottomley ordered his task force to cooperate fully with Frank. The book was an immediate bestseller. The widely read work and the widely viewed film reinforced in the public's mind the idea that the killings had been solved. Bailey, meanwhile, pocketed the advance money that was supposed to go to DeSalvo, prompting Albert to file complaints with the State Bar Association. Those complaints were consistently ignored. The money for the film rights likewise ended up in Bailey's pocket. In mid-April 1966, Bailey and Brooke agreed to bring DeSalvo to trial to face the charges arising from the Green Man case. By that time, several members of the task force had left to work for Bailey, which amounted not to them having switched sides, but to them having taken a more active role in the railroading of the designated Patsy. The key players decided not to bring Albert to trial for the stranglings, no doubt reasoning that the evidence was so glaringly fraudulent that it would not withstand public scrutiny even in a carefully controlled trial. The public, however, was clamoring for resolution of the case. Luckily then, 
Bailey came up with a way to indirectly try Albert on the murder charges by presenting what had to be the most preposterous and unethical defense in the history of American jurisprudence. As Bailey himself described his strategy, I wanted the right to defend a man for robbery and assault by proving that he had committed 13 murders. In other words, rather than defending his client against the relatively minor charges that he was actually facing, Bailey opted to proclaim DeSalvo's guilt on those charges, but argued that he should be found innocent by reason of insanity based on the fact that he had also committed 13 murders. Now that's a hell of a defense. The trial commenced in January 1967 with Albert standing before Judge Cornelius Moynihan accused of rape, robbery, and the commission of unnatural acts. He had already been convicted by the media and the public of far more serious crimes. The first witness called by the state was a Bridgewater inmate who knew both Nasser and DeSalvo, and who, strangely enough, listed F. Lee Bailey as his attorney of record. As would be the case with all the prosecution witnesses, Bailey did not bother to cross-examine his own client. In fact, he made no effort whatsoever to rebut the charges DeSalvo was facing. Instead, he presented a ridiculously flimsy case for DeSalvo's guilt in the Strangler killings, a case that would never have stood up to cross-examination. That was not really a concern, however, since when it is the defense attorney presenting the state's case, there isn't anyone to conduct a cross-examination. Just days into the trial, a recess was called as a mysterious meeting took place between Bailey, Prosecutor Donald Kahn and Judge Moynihan. The purpose of that meeting has never been revealed. Closing arguments, such as they were, were delivered on January 18th, and the jury was then sent off to deliberate. They returned the same day. There was never any question about what the verdict would be. The jury was not sequestered for the trial, and media headlines, not to mention Hollywood's offerings, regularly proclaimed DeSalvo to be the Boston Strangler. The trial was routinely referred to as the Strangler Trial, despite the fact that Albert had never even been charged with those crimes. The book and movie, released before the trial even began, had ingrained the official story in the public's mind. The defendant's own attorney had openly and repeatedly proclaimed his client's guilt. The jury was well aware of what it was expected to do. The end result was that DeSalvo was found guilty of robbery and assault by the jury, and guilty of murder in the court of public opinion, which is, by all appearances, exactly what was intended. Albert was given a life sentence, despite the fact that the charges he was convicted of would normally have earned him a maximum 25-year sentence with the possibility of parole after 10. As for Nasser, he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death, but the sentence was never carried out. He remains incarcerated to this day. Just five weeks after his conviction, DeSalvo, perhaps the most feared and closely guarded inmate in America, managed to escape from Bridgewater. Another wave of panic and fear gripped the city. Albert, however, was quickly recaptured. His two brothers were implicated in the escape and indicted on charges of aiding and abetting, but they never went to trial for their alleged crimes. On January 4th of the following year, Albert's appeal of his conviction, for which there was more than adequate grounds, was quickly denied. In 1973, Albert DeSalvo was stabbed 16 times while in the infirmary of the maximum security prison at Walpole, Massachusetts. The previous evening he had placed an urgent call to Dr. Ames Roby, a prison psychiatrist who had spent a considerable amount of time with the inmate. DeSalvo had told Roby that he wanted to meet with the doctor and a reporter early the next morning. Roby recalls what happened next. He was going to tell us who the Boston Strangler really was and what the whole thing was about. He had asked to be placed in the infirmary under special lockup about a week before. 
Something was going on within the prison and I think he felt he had to talk quickly. There were people in the prison, including guards, that were not happy with him. Somebody had to leave an awful lot of doors open, which meant, because there were several guards one would have to go by, there had to be a fair number of people paid or asked to turn their backs or something. But somebody put a knife into Albert DeSalvo's heart sometime between evening check and the morning. Richard DeSalvo had a similar recollection. He was going to, at some point in time, when it was right, he was going to talk and name names, heads were going to roll. He said real big, important people were going to, their heads were going to roll when he opens his mouth. Richard DeSalvo, who spoke to his brother by telephone on the evening of his death, has also said that Albert may have been drugged that night. That would explain why he was unable to fend off his attackers, since he was otherwise quite proficient at the art of hand-to-hand -hand combat. Three inmates were indicted and twice faced trial for the murder, which prosecutors rather preposterously portrayed as motivated by a desire to prevent DeSalvo from entering the prison drug trade. The first trial ended with a deadlocked jury and the second with a mistrial, after which the charges were dropped. Following his death, a manuscript that Albert had been working on was conspicuously missing from his personal effects. A copy of the autopsy report was handed to the DeSalvo family by, of all people, George Nasser. And so ended the case of the Boston Strangler, except that questions surrounding the killings persist to this day, 40 years after the last victim was killed. Even as these words are being written, surviving family members of both Albert DeSalvo and his last purported victim, Mary Sullivan, are clamoring for the investigation to be reopened. Sullivan's body was exhumed in October 2000 and a forensics examination revealed that the condition of her corpse was not consistent with DeSalvo's confessed version of how she was killed. Her remains also yielded two DNA samples, one from a semen stain on her pubic hair. Neither of the samples were a match for Albert DeSalvo, whose body was exhumed in October 2001. George Washington University law professor James E. Stars, who is leading the new forensics investigation, proclaimed, We have evidence that is strongly indicative that Albert DeSalvo was not the rapist murderer of Mary Sullivan. He promised a blockbuster report once the investigation has been completed. There has never been a shortage of suspects in the case. Near the top of the list is George Nasser, considered by many in the law enforcement community to be a serial assassin. Nasser bore a striking resemblance to one of the composite sketches of the Strangler, and he was tentatively identified by some of the crime scene witnesses. Investigative author Susan Kelly has identified other suspects as well. She has also put forth a convincing argument that many of the murders were unrelated. In the Sullivan case, police had two suspects before DeSalvo cleared them by confessing to the murder. The more likely of the two was her former boyfriend, William Ivey. Police had built a strong case against him and he had failed two polygraph examinations. Nevertheless, Ivey was never prosecuted. Patricia Bissett's death was probably also unconnected to the others. The prime suspect in her death was her boss, a defense contractor named Jules Rothman. Bissett, who had a flair for foreign languages, frequently traveled out of state with Rothman, with whom she was having an affair. It was likely Rothman's child that she was secretly carrying. It was also Rothman who discovered her body and spent time alone in her apartment with the corpse before police arrived. A photo album was missing from Bissett's apartment, as were numerous loose photographs and almost all of her personal correspondence, which she was known to save. Rothman was very close to being indicted when DeSalvo confessed. Sophie Clark's killer was likely Albert Williams, the son of a Cambridge minister. 
Williams had received a medical discharge from the army and he was known to suffer from blackouts. He had a long criminal record and was said to be a bisexual sadist. Like Ivy, he failed two polygraph examinations. The more intriguing suspects identified by Kelly are three men who had connections to several of the killings. They were, perhaps, the real, serial killers. The three had been friends and classmates at Harvard. One was Bradley Waring Shershewski, the son of a controller at what Kelly refers to as a prestigious New England prep school, very likely Phillips Academy considering that the Shershewski family lived in Andover. Andover and Phillips Academy were just a few miles from two of the death scenes. Bradley was first incarcerated on September 22, 1951, for the Oedipal crimes of savagely beating his father and attempting to rape his mother. Since 1959, he had been in and out of various mental hospitals. When not institutionalized, he reportedly worked as a gravedigger. Friends with Shershewski was fellow suspect William Axel Lindahl, the son of a Boston cop. Lindahl's mother died when he was just an infant, and he was subsequently raised by his physically abusive father. At Harvard, he joined the Naval ROTC, where he tried to strangle his drill instructor. He also tried to strangle his girlfriend. He later obtained a teaching job at Lake Forest Academy in Illinois, and he was said to be fluent in 14 languages. In 1970, the wife of one of his Harvard friends, who had long suspected Lindahl of being the strangler, turned up dead. Her husband was tried and convicted for her murder. That same year a reporter for the Boston Globe, who was another of Lindahl's college chums, was also accused of killing his wife. The final member of the trio was Peter Howard Denton, the genius son of a doctor and a nurse. Denton won a congressional appointment to West Point and from there went on to Harvard. His first arrest came on April 19, 1961, when he and four other Harvard men were found to be in possession of high explosives. What he and his cronies were planning to do with the explosives on the eve of the Fuhrer's birthday is unknown. Three years later, Denton wound up in a place well known to Albert DeSalvo and George Nasser, Bridgewater State Hospital. Still later, he set up a drug lab and was reportedly a heavy drug user himself, with a particular fondness for hallucinogens. Violent murders seemed to follow Denton wherever he roamed, he lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan when a string of girls turned up dead there, and he was in Los Angeles during the reign of the Hillside Stranglers. It is extremely unlikely that the new official investigation will reveal the truth about the Boston Strangler. Meanwhile, the state of Massachusetts recently refused to release evidence to a private investigative team, claiming that, 40 years after the fact, the case was still considered an ongoing investigation. Arthur Shawcross was a brutally efficient assassin who accumulated a career total of over 50 kills, although the first 39 were not considered crimes. And yet they were murders that were every bit as barbaric as those committed by any of the other serial killers discussed previously, complete with torture, mutilation, cannibalism and necrophilia. One female victim was decapitated and her head displayed on a stake. Shawcross then roasted and ate her thigh, all while another victim was forced to watch. The second victim was then beheaded, strung up by her feet and gutted like a slaughtered animal carcass. How then could these actions not be considered crimes? Simply put, it was because the victims were all Vietnamese nationals, and Arthur was just doing his job, terrorizing the Vietnamese people into acceding to U.S. demands. It was the same job that everyone else involved in the Phoenix program was engaged in. Shawcross did not become a criminal until he brought home the skills taught to him by the U.S. military. Arthur had a rather interesting history, one that likely made him an ideal candidate to serve as an assassin for Uncle Sam. 
He was born just before the end of World War II in a naval hospital to a naval officer father, who lived a rather shadowy existence, reportedly with a parallel life in Australia complete with another wife and son. Young Art grew up in a multi-generational family whose members all lived within about 100 feet of each other at a place the locals called Shawcross Corners. Incest and pedophilia apparently ran rampant within the Shawcross clan. Arthur has claimed that he was introduced to sex by his Aunt Tina and that his younger sister allowed him to sodomize her at a very young age. He also engaged in sexual antics with his cousin and with a young boy and girl who lived down the road. At the age of 10, he also began regularly having sex with a male friend named Mike. Art and Mike were introduced to bestiality by some men who owned a local sheep farm. Sexual partners the pair encountered there included sheep, chickens, a cow, a dog and a horse. Mike later killed his wife, his kids, and then himself. Art's mother occasionally raped her son with a broomstick, once causing severe internal injuries, as confirmed by hospital records. In addition to the sexual abuse, Arthur received frequent beatings with a belt and a broom handle. Little wonder then that Shawcross had a number of imaginary friends as a child and he was known to speak to himself in strange voices. At the tender age of eight, Shawcross was alone in a room with the father of a friend when the man reportedly died of a heart attack. What he was doing alone in the room with the man at the time is unknown, but it is clear that Shawcross had his first exposure to death while still quite young. By the age of 10 or 11, he was regularly running away from home. By 14, he was known to disappear for as long as four weeks at a time, venturing off alone to places unknown. At about that same point in his life, he was reportedly raped by an older man. By the age of 15, Arthur was committing burglaries with his friend Mike. He was convicted and he received probation for one such offense in 1963. Two years later, he was again convicted of burglary and again given probation. Not long after that, Shawcross began his military service, service that would soon take him into the jungles of Vietnam and, by his own accounting, transform his life. But before he even left the States, Art reportedly went AWOL, a transgression for which he strangely suffered no repercussions. Shawcross spent 13 months in Southeast Asia as a weapons specialist, although his apparently falsified military records indicate that he served as a supply clerk. Sometime in 1968, he was sent to Hawaii for R&R. He later reported that he spent that time champing at the bit to get back to the jungles of Vietnam. After his return, he spent long periods of time alone in the bush, becoming, as he described himself, a predator and a ghoul. He claimed that he became quite adept at modifying weapons for special purposes. He became, he said, a silent assassin, or as he described it, I was a ghost in the jungle, one bullet and no sound. By the time he came home, he had recorded 39 kills, many of his victims were women and children. Upon his return from Vietnam, he suffered blindingly painful headaches and he was treated by an army psychiatrist. He was stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where he was assigned to train recruits and set up exhibits of weapons for military shows. Uncle Sam apparently thought quite highly of the man who once explained that if you roast human flesh until it is well done, you can then snack on it for several days before it goes bad. Years later, after Art had put his acquired skills to work at home on non-Vietnamese victims, police asked him how he was able to kill these girls so easily, where did you learn to do that? 
Shawcross responded simply, ask Uncle Sam, asked where he had learned to butcher bodies so that they would decompose faster. He gave the same response Arthur experienced a bit of a surprise upon his return home from Vietnam when he was informed that he had married a woman named Linda Neary just before he had shipped out. He had no recollection of having done so. Nevertheless, Neary had received and spent all of his service paychecks. Shawcross later said that Neary's family, which he claimed was into witchcraft, would not allow him to leave. Not long after his return to the States, Shawcross burned down both a barn and Crowley's Cheese Company. He then set yet another fire at a paper mill on April 24, 1969. In September of that year, he was tried, convicted and sentenced to serve five years, but he was out in just two, after spending time at both Attica and Auburn prisons. After his release, Art remarried and worked for the Watertown Public Works Department, public works jobs being a popular pastime with many serial killers. He was apparently very popular with the local kids, many of whom he knew. One of those local kids was Jack Blake, a ten-year-old boy who visited with Shawcross frequently and enjoyed fishing with the older man. On June 4, 1972, Art raped, strangled, mutilated and cannibalized his young friend. He subsequently returned on several occasions to rape the boy's rotting corpse. Three months after Jack's disappearance, Shawcross similarly assaulted and killed an eight-year-old girl. He had been reported previously for wrestling neighborhood boys to the ground and stuffing grass into their pants and mouths. For that he had been fined $10 by the parole board. He was also reported by Jack's mother, Mary Blake, who told police of threats made against another boy. Nevertheless, it took authorities a good while to connect the disappearances of the two kids to Arthur Shawcross. Once caught, he was charged only with the murder of the girl. Despite the fact that he confessed to killing the boy as well, and led investigators to the body, he was never charged with any crimes in connection with the death of Jack Blake. He was also never charged with the rape, torture, mutilation, or cannibalization of either victim. Offered an outrageously lenient plea bargain deal, Shawcross pled guilty to one count of manslaughter and received a 25-year sentence. He served just 15 before being released to kill again. This was just another example of how the law enforcement and judicial communities frequently take actions that seem designed specifically to keep America's real killers on the streets, while simultaneously meting out draconian sentences to obvious patsies. If that is not the case, then how else are we to explain the incongruously lenient treatment afforded certain killers, particularly in a nation with what is arguably the harshest criminal justice system in the civilized world? Arthur was hardly a model prisoner for the first eight years of his incarceration. He was repeatedly disciplined for such infractions as fighting, possession of contraband, and setting fires. He was also questioned about the deaths of three of his fellow inmates. For the last seven years, however, Shawcross did reportedly become a model prisoner. He was even given a job counseling mental patients even though he himself was being treated by several prison psychiatrists and he complained frequently of hearing voices in his head. In March 1987, Art was set free. After being chased out of four local communities, the probation department decided to hide him in Rochester, the hometown of Hillside Strangler Kenneth Bianchi. Shawcross was purportedly closely monitored and he had very strict conditions placed upon his parole, absolutely no contact with children, no drinking, no consorting with prostitutes, no guns, and an 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. curfew. Nevertheless, Art was well known in the part of town where the community's prostitutes plied their trade. He was rumored to be selling drugs to the working girls, as well as to teenage runaways. 
On March 25, 1988, he was ticketed for driving without a license and for having two unrestrained children in the car, children that he was not supposed to be anywhere near. He was not charged with a parole violation. The kids were the grandchildren of Clara Neal, one of many women with whom Art was having affairs. Shawcross was also friends with Clara's son Donnie, his hunting partner, and he occasionally spent time with her daughter Loretta. Arthur's paramours also included several of his victims. When Art was not servicing and or killing one of his female acquaintances, he could frequently be found hanging out at the local donut shop chatting with the city's police officers. The first victims of the serial killer variously referred to as the Rochester Night Stalker, the Rochester Strangler, or the Genesee River Killer, were found in the summer and early fall of 1989. At the time, Arthur was officially under the supervision of the local parole board, mental health workers, and social workers. Most of the victims could be directly linked to Shawcross, a known sex offender and multiple murderer. As he later said, I knew them all, and they knew me. Nevertheless, 11 women were killed before authorities got around to connecting the murders to Arthur Shawcross. One of the victims was Dorothy Keller, one of Art's on-and-off girlfriends who also knew his wife, Rose Shawcross. Prior to her death, Keller was an occasional visitor to the Shawcross apartment. Patty Ives was another victim who was quite well known to her killer, as was June Stotts, a mildly retarded friend of the Shawcross family who was a frequent visitor to their home and who was regularly seen with Art at a local eatery. After her death, she was cut open from her neck to her anus, gutted, cannibalized and sexually violated. None of Art's victims appeared to have put up a struggle, no defensive wounds were present on any of the bodies and there were no signs that the victims had been physically restrained. Police reportedly marveled over the killer's ability to completely control both the victims and the crime scenes. Some investigators speculated that a stun gun might have been used to disable the women. Law enforcement officials initially assumed that two or three separate killers were at work simultaneously. The manner in which the women were killed varied, not surprisingly, and included beheading, strangulation, bludgeoning, and suffocation, drowning. One victim, Lisa Gibson, was found in another county, many miles away from where the other bodies were deposited. Some of the corpses that were found during Art's reign were of black prostitutes. One of them, Felicia Stevens, was found in the same park where two of Art's admitted victims surfaced. Shawcross, however, declined to take credit for the murders of the black victims. In January 1990, Art was captured and he proceeded to give his captors a full confession after being interrogated without an attorney. Little evidence other than his confession directly linked Shawcross to the killings. The crime scenes had been left remarkably free of any incriminating evidence. Arthur Shawcross had apparently been very well trained. He went to trial in 1991, with his defense counsel claiming insanity. He was said to be suffering from multiple personality disorder. Under hypnosis, he reportedly spoke as a 13th century cannibal named Ariams, an 11-year-old boy, and his own mother. Dr. Dorothy Otnow Lewis concluded that Shawcross had been severely sexually abused and had, therefore, developed a dissociative style of coping with his intolerable situation. She added, this kind of phenomenon is characteristic of severely abused children who eventually dissociate to the point of becoming multiple personalities. Dr. Park Elliott Dietz of the FBI's BSU, called as a psychiatric witness for the prosecution, disputed the MPD claims. That is the sort of thing that Dietz makes a career of doing. He can be seen with appalling frequency on the television screen speaking as an expert on serial killer cases. 
The jury rejected the insanity defense and the claims of a dissociative disorder and convicted Shawcross of 10 counts of murder, largely on the strength of his illegally obtained confession. He was sentenced to 10 consecutive 25-year sentences. There is little question though that Art did indeed have a serious dissociative disorder. He suffered from blackouts all of his life. He reportedly had a strong tendency to space out to such an extent that he sometimes had to be physically shaken to get a response. He also was known to frequently wander off and then find himself in an unknown place with no awareness of how he had gotten there. Author Joel Norris has written that Shawcross once described the killings to him as occurring in a kind of dream state in which another person inside of him was reacting in his place. During those times, the killer was able to completely shut out the world around him, to such an extent that, as Art recalled, he didn't hear anything around me, I couldn't figure that out. Other times in my life I have had the feeling of leaving my body. What remained in that body was a highly efficient, emotionless, programmed assassin, one of Uncle Sam's finest. There is little question that Arthur Shawcross committed numerous murders in his life. But where does the real guilt for his crimes lie? With Shawcross, or with those who deliberately and systematically trained him to be a remorseless killer? Daniel Rowling was raised by his mother, Claudia Beatrice Rowling, and his physically abusive father, James Harold Rowling. James had served in the Korean War, from which he returned as a highly decorated hero. He has been described as an extremely controlling man with a violent temper. He reportedly tied his sons up frequently, and on one occasion locked then 13-year-old Danny up in a jail cell for two weeks. He also derived a perverse pleasure from trapping neighborhood cats, shooting them, and then watching them die. The Rowling family had a long history of mental illness, violence, and suicide. Danny's great-grandfather had slit his wife's throat from ear to ear, killing her in full view of Danny's father. The family also had a history of working in law enforcement. Danny's grandfather had worked for the county sheriff's office, and his father joined the local force in Shreveport, Louisiana and quickly made lieutenant. In June 1971, Danny became an airman in the U.S. Air Force. Like Albert DeSalvo, he was just 17 at the time of his enlistment, his father signed for him. Two years later he found himself in a military prison, gaining a discharge after an Air Force psychiatrist determined that he had an antisocial personality disorder. By late 1973, he was back home in Shreveport where he regularly attended church, sang in the choir, and played his beloved guitar. Like so many other accused serial killers, Rowling viewed himself as an artist, in this case, a singer, songwriter, guitarist, not unlike Charlie Manson. On September 6, 1974, Danny married. He was at the time working for the local water department. By 1977, Rowling's wife had filed for divorce. She later married a cop. Danny, meanwhile, embarked on a career in crime. In 1979, he was charged with two counts of armed robbery. Following his conviction on the charges, he was sentenced to a six-year prison term. Not long into his incarceration, Rowling managed to escape, but he was recaptured just hours later. For his efforts, he had an extra year tacked onto his sentence. In February 1980, he pled guilty to a charge of armed robbery in the state of Alabama, earning him a 10-year sentence in that state. On June 7, 1982, Danny was released by the state of Louisiana after serving less than half his sentence. He immediately began serving time in Alabama for his conviction there. The very next month he escaped again, but he was recaptured after two days. Nevertheless, he was released after just two years, having served a total of just five years of his combined 17-year sentence. 
Upon his release, he headed west to California, for reasons unknown, and then drifted his way back east. In Mississippi he was charged with grand larceny and armed robbery and given a 15-year sentence, which he began serving on July 25, 1985. Rowling was regularly put into solitary confinement in a cold, damp, sewage-infested cell. Eventually he graduated up to being put on a chain gang. On July 29, 1988, after serving just three years of his sentence, he was again released. Upon his return home, he immediately began attracting neighborhood kids, just as Shawcross had done upon his return from prison. On May 17, 1990, James Harold Rowling opened fire with his service revolver on his son Danny. More than once he had told his wife that he wished the boy were dead. But it was not Danny that almost died that day. Rowling returned his father's fire, hitting the senior Rowling and knocking him down. Danny then shot him again, in the face, from close range. He then kicked his father's prone and nearly dead body. James though miraculously survived. Danny, meanwhile, fled to Sarasota, Florida, allegedly assuming the identity of a Vietnam veteran named Michael J. Kennedy who had died in 1975. Danny, Michael left Sarasota suddenly on August 18 and headed for Gainesville, where he set up camp in a wooded area. Rowling's arrival in Gainesville coincided with Money Magazine's ranking of the city as the 13th safest place to live in the United States. It was about to be rocked by five brutal and seemingly senseless murders in the space of less than 48 hours. Gainesville police officer Ray Berber discovered the first two bodies on August 26, 1990. He was the first officer on the scene and he spent time alone in the apartment of the two dead college students, who had been stabbed repeatedly, mutilated, and left posed as a macabre greeting for their discoverers. One of the girls was in her bed, the other on the floor of the apartment's living room. One had been raped. Both bodies had been washed with detergent to cleanse them of forensic evidence. It appeared as though the killer, or killers, had thoroughly searched the apartment. One body was left spread eagle on the floor facing the front door, a gaping hole in her chest where her breasts had been removed. Some of the parts carved from the two girls had been taken by the killers. Evidence suggested that duct tape had been used as a restraint, but the tape had subsequently been removed. Most of the blood spilled by the victims had been wiped away. In a remarkably short time, the crime scene was crawling with law enforcement personnel. Twenty or more officials were on the scene within minutes, including the Gainesville police chief and a state's attorney. Just nine hours later, a similar scene played out elsewhere in Gainesville. In a rather unlikely scenario, the first officer at that crime scene was Officer Gail Berber, the wife of Ray Berber. The victim was Krista Hoyt, whom Gail had trained as a sheriff, as explorer. Krista had subsequently gone to work full-time in the records department of the sheriff, as office. Her head had been cleanly severed and placed on a bookshelf facing the front door. Her headless corpse had been carefully posed. Her nipples had been removed and placed alongside of the body. Her breasts were then removed and wrapped up to go, but the killer had apparently forgotten to take them. Krista had been sliced open from her breastbone to her public bone with surgical precision, without any damage done to any of her internal organs. A&E noted, the cuts were precise, ritualistic. As with the first crime scene, there was evidence of rape and restraint with adhesive tape, and the body had been washed with soap and water. The home appeared to have been methodically searched. The crime scene clearly suggested that multiple perpetrators were responsible for the brutal murder. A bookcase had been moved down the hall, past the bathroom and into the bedroom. Investigators doubted that one man alone could have moved the heavy and unwieldy unit. 
Another heavy bookcase had likewise been moved to allow Krista's head to be positioned for maximum effect. The body had been moved several hours after death, indicating that the killers either remained at the scene for a considerable amount of time or returned to the scene for reasons unknown. It was later claimed that Danny Rowling returned to retrieve his wallet, although that claim begs the question of why a serial killer and veteran criminal would be carrying such an incriminating piece of evidence that could be inadvertently left behind. Hoyt, who put up a fight against her killers, had spent a summer at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's entomology lab. She aspired to be a chemist working in criminal forensics and towards that end had joined the sheriff's explorers in her senior year of high school. She was reportedly having an office romance with a deputy sheriff. She also had a fondness for the color black, with her car, most of her wardrobe, and the black roses on her birthday cake chosen accordingly. She had also, curiously, made mention of a devil cult living in the immediate vicinity. A task force, which included no fewer than ten members of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit, was immediately assembled. The principal agent working the case for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement was J.O. Jackson, who had served in the same capacity on the case of the recently executed Ted Bundy. In addition to the FBI's team of profilers, which included the ubiquitous John Douglas and the FDLE agents, the task force included local police, state troopers, and U.S. Navy reservists. The show of force by the police was unprecedented and a highly militarized atmosphere soon enveloped the college town, with various law enforcement agencies conducting coordinated paramilitary maneuvers. It looked very much like a dress rehearsal for a declaration of martial law. The day after Krista Hoyt's body was found, two more victims were discovered. One of them was a 6 feet 3 inches tall, 200 plus pound powerfully built college athlete who had struggled valiantly with his attackers, suffering 31 stab wounds to his chest, face, arms, hands, and legs, many of them defensive wounds. Though it was ultimately claimed that Danny Rowling, acting alone, killed Manny Toboada, the truth is that he did not appear to be physically up to the task. Toboada's roommate, Tracy Poles, was killed along with Manny, raising further doubts that a single killer was responsible. Poles had been raped anally and left on display. There was semen present and five cubic hairs were found. There were marked differences between the Toboada Poles crime scene and the two previous ones. Blood was splattered everywhere about the home the two students shared. No attempt had been made to clean up the bodies or the crime scene. Though the two victims had died exceedingly violent deaths, there were no gratuitous mutilations to the bodies. A maintenance man discovered the victims when he opened the door to what he thought was a burglarized apartment and peered in. He reported seeing a dark colored bag on the floor near Tracy's head. He immediately turned around, locked the door and left to await the arrival of police. When he returned with the officers, he found that the door was unlocked and the bag was missing. Following the discovery of the last two bodies, the rash of killings ended just as suddenly and just as mysteriously as it had begun. On the same day that Manny and Tracy were found dead, a known drug dealer named Tony Danzi and a man alleged to be Danny Rowling were seen lurking in the woods. Though Rowling avoided capture, various items from the pair's campsite were seized as evidence, including a cassette recorder and cash that was said to be linked to a bank robbery from the previous day. From this we can surmise that in the midst of his two-day killing frenzy Rowling took a short break to rob a bank with a sidekick, who, of course, had nothing to do with the murders. Two days after the last victims were discovered, a man named Edward Lewis Humphrey had a violent altercation with his grandmother. Humphrey was one of three prime suspects in the case, and he remained a prime suspect throughout the next year, although he was never formally charged.
Humphrey had made violent threats in the past, and he was known for displays of erratic behavior. He was aware of unreleased details of the crimes, including the nature of the wounds received by the victims. He also lived very close to the Toboada, Poles crime scene and his brother George knew victim Tracy Poles. Humphrey was the offspring of an alcoholic mother and an abusive father. He had in the past been diagnosed as manic-depressive and committed to a psychiatric facility. Ed's sister believed that it was while he was institutionalized that he began getting crazy thoughts in his head, such as that Satan was after him. Indeed, Ed thought that Satan was everywhere. He also developed a sudden interest in knives and militaristic behavior. Friends reported that he frequently put on army fatigues and ventured off into the woods saying that he was going out on recon. Neighbors had seen him returning from the woods late at night carrying a hunting knife. Ed also claimed to be the middleman for a high-volume drug dealer, this despite the fact that he lived directly below a Gainesville police officer. Following his arrest for the attack on his grandmother, Ed was taken to Regional Medical Center and questioned for more than 24 hours without an attorney present. Although he was a first-time offender charged only with aggravated assault, his bail was set at $1 million. Following his conviction, he was sentenced to serve 22 months at Chattahoochee State Hospital, which seemed to please his mother, you should know this, many of Ed's friends are bad boys and Ed is in a good place now, and if he commits suicide, well, that's life. Humphrey was suspected of being afflicted with multiple personality disorder. He admitted to knowing about the killings, but he blamed them on alter identities that he said he had no control over. One of his fellow inmates, Stephen Michael Bates, claimed that he had participated in the murders with Humphrey and a third man. He also said that Humphrey was involved in satanic stuff. The Gainesville campus was rife with talk of a satanic cult at work. Of the lead suspects other than Humphrey, one reportedly had satanic writings in his home, another, described as a charmer with the ladies, was suspected of a multiple stabbing murder in Ohio. Some of the items on the list of evidence sought by the task force, which included a black hood, photographs, audio tapes, or videotapes of the murders being performed, human flesh, severed nipples, and human blood, hinted at satanic involvement in the crimes. On September 25, 1990, investigators announced that semen samples recovered from two of the crime scenes matched. A full year later, in September 1991, Rowling was convicted on robbery charges and sentenced to life in prison as an habitual offender. No one had yet been arrested or charged for the five murders. Danny had never been considered a suspect. Over the course of the next two months, Rowling was convicted on two separate counts of burglary. For the three convictions, he was sentenced to a total of three life terms plus an additional 170 years. And the state of Florida was not done with Danny Rowling. While he was in custody, samples of Rowling's blood and hair were surreptitiously gathered, the blood from a tooth extraction and the hair from a haircut. Prosecutors later returned with a warrant and gathered the very same samples from Danny, making no mention of the samples gathered previously. On November 1st, a grand jury was convened to hear the purported case against Danny Rowling for the five grisly murders. Two weeks later, Rowling was indicted on murder charges. Following that, he reportedly made several suicide attempts, which led to his being transferred to Chattahoochee State Hospital. Meanwhile, the officer who had served as the police spokesman on the murder cases moved on to the FBI Academy at Quantico. At around that same time, Danny began a relationship with a rather notorious character named Sandra London, a serial killer groupie and true crime writer. 
London, who claims as friends such notables as prolific author Anne Rule and the Behavioral Sciences Unit's resident ritual abuse denier, Kenneth Lanning, urged Danny to publicly take credit for the Gainesville murders. Rowling's cellmate, convicted murderer Bobby Lewis, also played a key role in that effort. Danny soon reportedly confessed to the murders, but it was actually Lewis who did all the talking. Rowling's role was to sit nearby in a nearly catatonic state and occasionally nod in agreement or mumble an affirmative response. The first such confession was audiotape and the second was videotaped. It is clear from both that Rowling was almost completely incapacitated. The killings were blamed on an alter ego named Gemini, who acted alone. Danny claimed to have no control over the actions of his alter identities, which was probably true. The confessions were largely unverifiable, but in an attempt to verify some aspect of them, police investigators searched for the murder weapon based on information supplied by Rowling. They came up empty-handed. Rowling's trial on the homicide charges was repeatedly postponed. First scheduled for September 1992, it did not begin until February 15, 1994. The jury was barely seated when its services were rendered unnecessary. Danny shocked the court and all involved in the case by entering guilty pleas to all the charges he was facing. The trial, therefore, immediately shifted to the penalty phase, with the jury reduced to an advisory role. Rowling claimed that he had entered the pleas in order to keep the details of the murders from being aired in open court. His intent was allegedly to allow Ms. London to publish his exclusive story, just as she had gotten Schaefer's serial killer fiction, published by Feral House, the publishing house owned by Adam Parfrey that has exclusive rights to the copious writings of Church of Satan founder Anton Lavey. Whether that was Rowling's true intent remains an open question. If it was, then the plan failed miserably. Prosecutors proceeded to air their case, such as it was, regardless of the guilty pleas. And since guilt was no longer an issue, the case that was presented went almost completely unchallenged, with nary an objection to be heard from the defense team, despite that fact that the primary evidence was, at best, problematic. The state claimed, for instance, that a Stanley screwdriver found at the campsite was the tool used to gain access to the murder scenes. Pry marks found at the scenes purportedly matched the blade of that particular screwdriver, although it is difficult to conceive how the literally thousands of identical screwdrivers manufactured by Stanley could have been excluded. Another problem was that the screwdriver, even if it could be linked to the crimes, could not be linked to rolling. There was no evidence that he had ever purchased or owned it. The state simply claimed that Danny had stolen the screwdriver, but there was no evidence to support that claim. Prosecutors also claimed that Rowling had stolen duct tape and two pairs of athletic gloves that were allegedly found at the campsite, but there was also no evidence to support that contention. No physical evidence, such as fingerprints, tied any of the items to Danny. No murder weapon could be linked to the defendant, but that did not stop prosecutors from claiming, without documentation, that Danny had purchased a knife in Tallahassee using an assumed name. A pair of black pants that were allegedly recovered from the campsite, and that were allegedly stained with Manny Toboada's blood, were presented as evidence. Prosecutors did not bother though to explain how the bloodstains could be on the pants when it was known that Toboada's killer had thoroughly cleansed himself by taking a dip in the building's pool immediately after the murders. Other evidence included, the bizarre, videotape, third-party, confession, a clothing fiber purportedly found at one of the crime scenes, a note found at one scene that allegedly matched Rowling's handwriting, and a pubic hair from Krista Hoyt that was allegedly found at the campsite. It was never explained why all the alleged campsite evidence was not produced until a year after the investigation had begun. 
The state claimed that a genetic blueprint in blood and semen samples positively identified Rowling as the killer. Such a claim, however, would be somewhat more credible if investigators building the case against Danny had not clandestinely gathered biological samples from him, samples that could easily have been planted as evidence. Another item purportedly found at the campsite was a cassette tape recorder. Inside was a tape that Rowling had made for his family. That tape reportedly was not listened to until months after it was seized and booked into evidence. Danny had ended the tape with the following statement, Well, I'm gonna sign off for a little bit. I got something I gotta do. I love ya. Bye. That rather innocuous comment was touted by the state, rather creatively, as irrefutable proof of the defendant's guilt. Though it hardly needs to be stated, most people at any given time have something they gotta do. Very rarely does that involve committing mass murder. In a scenario that precisely mirrored the circumstances of Ted Bundy's kidnapping trial, Danny Rowling's defense attorneys, the presiding judge, and the prosecutors had all been classmates together at the University of Florida Law School. It is, indeed, a small world that serial killers inhabit. Appearing before the court as a defense witness, Rowling's mother offered testimony concerning possible demonic possession and detailed the family's history of mental illness and institutionalization. Danny, who was frequently described as a Jekyll and Hyde, claimed via his confessional videotape that he suffered from multiple personalities. All the experts called to the stand, however, disputed that contention. After just five hours of deliberations, the jury returned with a recommendation that Rowling be given five death sentences. The judge opted to let a few weeks pass before formally imposing sentence on Danny, doing so, appropriately enough, on April 20, 1994. In the interim, Rowling's father was cited for battery of his terminally ill wife. Civilization, it's not of the Lord, it's of the devil, brother, old Lucifer, he was at me for a long time, knocking on the door to my mind. Danny Rowling, who, curiously, was missing a portion of his left ring finger. Chapter 18, The Profiler and the Patsy After the use of the hypnotic drug I had the strange compulsion to take the blame for all the charges pressed against me. It must have been a post-hypnotic influence. William Hirons The FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit, which gave the world the science of criminal profiling, first began taking shape around 1969, the year that the Manson family first captured national headlines. The new unit did not really take off though until 1972, when the FBI Academy opened in Quantico, Virginia. Robert Ressler joined the BSU team in 1974 and, along with John Douglas, he became one of the most well-known of the unit's profilers and one of the most prolific of its chroniclers. At the time that he joined, the unit had no operational functions, it existed solely for the purpose of teaching the principles of profiling. Ressler was taught by the pioneers of the science, Howard Teton and Pat Mullany. In 1977, a pilot program was begun to study the rapid proliferation of what were soon to be dubbed serial killers. The program included such notable members as Robert Ressler, John Douglas, Ann Burgess and Ralph D'Agostino. In 1978, Ressler spearheaded the operational unit of the BSU. At around that same time, he was credited with coining the now ubiquitous term, serial killer. During his fabled career, Ressler sat down to chat with a number of the high-profile criminals whose stories have been told in the pages of this book. He was among the first to interview Ted Bundy, and one of the last to talk to John Wayne Gacy. He held court with Charles Manson, Saran Saran, Richard Speck, Ed Kemper, Jeffrey Dahmer, and many others. 
He also served as the first program manager for VICAP, the violent criminal apprehension program that Ann Rule so tirelessly campaigned for. Ressler once gave an interviewer the following capsule history of criminal profiling. The original profilers pretty much emanated from the behavioral science work at Quantico, and it spread from law enforcement to the academic. By bringing in Dr. Park Dietz and others like him, we started spilling it over into the professional community, and where psychiatry had initially been at odds with the FBI approach, a lot of mental health professionals then got on board. Over the years, the forensic community has pretty much accepted what we were doing in behavioral science and absorbed it. In other words, in the last 25 to 30 years the FBI has managed, despite initial resistance, to thoroughly co-opt the fields of law enforcement, academia, mental health, and the forensic sciences. In doing so, the FBI's profilers have successfully molded public opinion and firmly ingrained in the mind of the average American the concept of the serial killer. This effort has been so successful that it has become all but impossible to question whether the contemporary view of violent crime is at all accurate. In August 1990, Ressler ostensibly retired from government service, though he has spent his retirement years introducing VICAP to Japan, South Africa, Poland, and several other countries. Since his retirement, he has served as the director of an entity called Forensics Behavioral Services International. One of the primary goals of the enterprise, according to one of Ressler's associates, Dr. Christine Kokonos, is a complete and seamless merging of the fields of law enforcement and psychology. Robert Ressler's bio reads as though it was lifted off the pages of a Hollywood screenplay. He grew up in Chicago, with a boy whose name may be familiar from a previous chapter, John Wayne Gacy. Bobby and John lived on the same street and were Boy Scouts together in the same scout troop. It was the classic story of two boys whose lives took radically divergent paths, at least by outward appearances. Ressler later returned to Chicago to assist in investigating the Gacy case, and still later helped to prepare the prosecution case against his childhood acquaintance. Ressler claims that his first foray into gaining an understanding of the criminal mind came as a young boy, when he started his own private investigation firm. The agency was founded specifically to look into the case of William Hirons, who allegedly stalked the streets of Chicago long before Richard Speck, John Wayne Gacy or Robin Gecht walked that beat. You could say that the Hirons case provided Ressler with his first opportunity to try his hand at profiling. William Hirons was, according to the official narrative, the country's first post-war serial killer. His alleged crimes were committed during a period in America's history when crime rates were soaring all across the nation, particularly in the big cities. The year was 1945. World War II had just ended and tens of thousands of young men desensitized to extreme levels of human brutality were coming home. The city of Chicago recorded 109 robberies, 265 burglaries, 109 stolen cars, 4 rapes, and 8 murders in just the first 10 days of December 1945. Those were staggeringly high numbers in those days. It is interesting then that three particular murders stunned not just the city of Chicago, but the entire country. The first of the three occurred in June 1945, just weeks after the United States had declared victory in Europe, the last, and by far the grisliest, was in January 1946. All three were ultimately attributed to William Hirons, who was just 16 years old at the time of the first murder. Hirons was born in November 1928 to a mother and father who were known to have frequent violent arguments. Young Bill reportedly developed a habit of leaving the house by himself so as to avoid the violent confrontations. 
Not surprisingly, he was often described as a loner. Hirons first ran afoul of the law at the age of 13, when he was found to be in possession of a loaded gun at school. Eight more weapons were found stashed in his home. As punishment, he was sent to the Catholic-run Jabalt School in Terre Haute, Indiana. The year was 1942. Hirons had barely walked out the door of the institution when a new student arrived at the Jabalt School, Charles Mills Manson. Shortly after his release, Hirons managed to get himself arrested once again. That time he was sent to the Benedictine monk-run St. Bede's Academy in Peru, Illinois. Following that, he was urged to take a test for admittance to a special learning program at the University of Chicago. He was reportedly an exceptionally gifted student. Soon he discovered girls, however, and his grades began to slip. That was when, purportedly, he decided to go on a killing spree. He also reportedly developed a fondness for dressing in women's clothes and an interest in Hitler and the trappings of Nazism. The first of the victims was Josephine Ross, a 43-year-old, thrice-divorced woman who was said to be on a quest for husband number four. She was known to visit psychics and fortune-tellers to assist in attaining that goal. Ross was found sprawled on her bed in a room heavily splattered with blood. Her throat had been slashed multiple times and her bloodied head was wrapped in a dress. There was blood on the walls, the floor, the drapes and the furniture. Bloody water and clothes were left in the bathtub, where the body had been washed. No fingerprints could be found anywhere at the scene. About four months later, on October 5, 1945, a prowler allegedly entered the apartment of an army nurse. Surprised by the occupant, the intruder hit her and fled, leaving behind fingerprints and an eyewitness. The prints were allegedly later identified as belonging to William Hirons. Strangely though, the prints were not initially identified at all, despite the fact that Hiran's prints were on file with the police. Authorities never explained why the alleged serial killer chose not to attack the victim. Two months later, on December 10th, a former U.S. Army wave named Frances Brown was brutally shot and stabbed to death. Her nude body was found sprawled over her bathtub, her head wrapped in pajamas. There was a butcher knife buried in her neck and a bullet in her head. A blood trail led from the splattered bed to the bathroom. As in the Josephine Ross case, the home had been thoroughly searched, though nothing appeared to be missing. A bloody fingerprint was allegedly left behind on a doorjamb, but it was only belatedly discovered. A man described as being 35 to 40 years of age was reportedly seen leaving the property. Hirons was less than half that age. A local butcher named George Caraboni confessed to murdering Francis Brown, but police discounted his confession, claiming that Caraboni's story kept changing. Caraboni was at that time already under investigation in Cleveland for 13 murders involving beheadings and mutilations. On January 7, 1946, the six-year-old daughter of an official with the Office of Price Administration disappeared from an occupied home in a kidnapping murder case that seemed to borrow heavily from the infamous Lindbergh kidnapping. There were two families living in the home from which Suzanne Degnan vanished, and yet no one living there reportedly saw or heard a thing. After she was reported missing, the house immediately filled with police. A note was found that no one had previously noticed, purportedly because it was mistaken for a discarded tissue. Outside the home, a seven-foot ladder was found that, naturally, was just tall enough to reach to the girl's bedroom window. The alleged kidnapper demanded $20,000 from the Degnan family for Suzanne's return, but no amount of ransom money was going to bring her back. She had already been skillfully chopped up by a trained butcher, authorities initially suspected, and then scattered in the city's sewers. 
Initially arrested for the murder was the 65-year-old janitor of a nearby apartment building named Hector Verberg. Police confidently announced to the press that they had their man. They then spent the next two days tirelessly torturing their suspect before quietly admitting that they had the wrong man. Verberg was paid $20,000, a not insignificant amount of money in the 1940s, to settle his claim against the city. Hirons was arrested on June 26, 1946, nearly six months after the last murder, on burglary charges. The arrest, which followed a botched break-in, was facilitated by an off-duty officer who just happened to be on hand to smash a few large flowerpots over Hirons' head. Bill was not in custody long before his captors began accusing him of the murder of Suzanne Degnan. However, he was not initially accused of either the Ross or Brown homicides, which had no known connection to the Degnan kidnapping and murder. He was though accused of another homicide, which was also unrelated to the Degnan case. Police eventually realized that they were not going to be able to make that murder charge stick, since Hirons had been in school in Indiana at the time. Shortly before Hirons had been arrested, a man named Richard Thomas confessed to the murder of Suzanne Degnan. Thomas had been in Chicago at the time of the Degnan slaying, working near the Degnan home. At the time of his confession, he was awaiting sentencing in Phoenix, Arizona for the crime of molesting one of his own children. He had previously been convicted of attempted extortion in a case involving a ransom note that threatened the kidnapping of a young girl. A handwriting expert in Phoenix determined that Thomas's writing was a close match for the writing on the Degnan ransom note. Chicago police were duly dispatched to Phoenix to interview the suspect, but their mission was quickly preempted when Illinois State's attorney William Tuohy publicly announced that William Hirons was the party responsible for the girl's death, even though no evidence existed at that time to support that charge and Hirons was steadfastly denying the allegations. To elicit a confession from young William, who was not yet an adult, his captors subjected him to what can only be described as severe torture. He was beaten repeatedly for the first few days of his incarceration, and deprived of food, water and sleep. Then he was injected with sodium pentothal, a hypnotic, truth, drug, and moved to solitary confinement. On his fifth day of custody, he was administered a spinal tap, an exceedingly painful surgical procedure for which there was no medical justification. He was given no anesthesia. Just 15 minutes after the procedure was completed, he was yanked from his bed and taken, quite literally, for a rough ride on cobblestone roads. Then he was administered a lie detector test. At no time during his ordeal was he allowed access to counsel. Hirons, nevertheless, remained a remarkably uncooperative patsy. He ultimately took the fall only, as he later explained, because he had reason to fear for his life. It was claimed that Hirons confessed to the crimes while under the influence of a hypnotic drug. He purportedly spoke of an alter identity named George whom he blamed for the murders. In all the decades that have passed since the confession was allegedly obtained, however, no transcript of the interview has ever been produced. Prosecutor Tui initially claimed that the transcript was not yet ready for release, but he then later denied that an interview had ever been conducted with the aid of drugs. A number of witnesses recalled that Tui had personally attended that interview. One man who had attended, a Dr. Grinker, admitted in 1952 that, despite the allusions to an evil alter ego, Hirons never directly implicated himself in any crimes during the interview. As for the lie detector test, Tui claimed that it was inconclusive. The inventors of the particular test that was administered to Hirons, however, published their analysis of the results in a 1953 textbook. Hirons' response on the card test clearly establishes him as an innocent person. 
a renowned handwriting expert by the name of George Schwartz was summoned to attempt to match Hiran's handwriting to that on the ransom note and on a message that had been scrawled in lipstick at one of the crime scenes. Schwartz concluded that the individual characteristics in the two writings do not compare in any respect. Undeterred, the state brought in another expert, Herbert J. Walter, who had aided the state in manufacturing a case against Bruno Richard Hauptmann for the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Walter concluded that Hirons was the author of both the note and the lipstick message, contradicting the opinion that he himself had expressed before being brought onto the case. Many experts have subsequently rejected Walter's conclusions. At one point in the Hirons investigation, police enlisted the services of Frank San Hamill, a Chicago Daily News artist, to enhance the writing on the ransom note. San Hamill claimed that he discovered what he dubbed hidden indentation writing, and that that purportedly hidden writing conclusively linked Hirons to the note. No one ever bothered to explain what hidden indentation writing actually was or how it linked Hirons to the crime. Fingerprint evidence allegedly irrefutably established Hirons' guilt, but that evidence was dubious at best. A print supposedly recovered from the ransom note was reported to be a match for Hirons, but the print actually matched on only nine points while the FBI's fingerprint manual specifically required 12 points for a positive identification. More troubling is that the print seems to have surfaced out of thin air. Chicago police initially announced that no prints were present on the note. Analysts at the FBI lab, however, uncovered two prints, but neither of them had been left by Hirons. It was not until years later that the print linking Hirons to the crime was allegedly found on the back of the note. To this day it remains a mystery exactly when that print was found, and by whom. The fingerprint that was purportedly left prominently displayed at the Brown home was also announced to be a match for William Hirons, despite the fact that police captain Emmett Evans had previously announced that the print did not match Hirons' prints. More troubling was that the print had full left and right margins, which is possible only if the finger has been carefully rolled on the surface, as occurs when someone is being fingerprinted, but generally not when a print is inadvertently left at a crime scene. No blood evidence was ever produced in the case, nor was any hair or fiber evidence, and no witnesses, initially at least, could link Hirons to the victims or the crime scenes. George E. Subgrunsky, a soldier on furlough, had witnessed a man leaving the Degnan residence. He had described the suspect as a 35-year-old man. He was unable to identify Hirons from photos, but he did manage to do so as a spectator in the courtroom. According to the Center for Wrongful Convictions, Subgrunsky proved to be a publicity-seeking fraud. The state's case was, needless to say, far too shaky to present in a public trial. Prosecutors Tui and Wilbert Crowley met behind closed doors with Hiran's defense attorneys and offered their client a single-life prison term in exchange for guilty pleas to all three counts of murder. No details of the deal were released to the press. The defense team did not bother to conduct any semblance of an independent investigation of the state's evidence before agreeing to the deal. Hiran's, however, was still resisting the state's efforts to extract a confession and guilty pleas. But then a most remarkable thing happened, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune named George Wright drafted a completely bogus confession, which he attributed to anonymous, unimpeachable sources. The Tribune ran the fraudulent story on the front page of their July 16th edition, touting it as an actual confession from William Hirons. All of the newspaper's competitors promptly did likewise. Shortly after that, Hirons was compelled to author a confession, using Wright's fabricated confession as a script. In other words, he retroactively legitimized what had been an entirely fictional account of the crimes. 
A date was then set for Hirons to publicly confess to his alleged crimes and enter his plea. There was a very large turnout for the much-anticipated event. Public officials and the press came out in droves to see the show. But the star had not yet been sufficiently coerced to play his part in the charade and he pointedly refused to confess and enter a guilty plea. Both the state's attorneys and Hirons' own defense lawyers were livid. The prosecutor's offer was immediately revoked and a new one proffered, three life terms in exchange for the guilty pleas. A new date was set and September brought Hirons his second chance for a public confession. Mary Jane Blanchard, the daughter of victim Josephine Ross, was there for that second public spectacle. She told the press that she thought Hirons had been framed. After an excruciating pause, Hirons reluctantly entered his guilty pleas. Audible sighs of relief could be heard from the bench and throughout the courtroom. He was duly sentenced to serve three life sentences. Nearly 60 years later, he is still serving those sentences, and he is still steadfastly proclaiming his innocence. He now has the rather dubious honor of being the longest-serving inmate in the history of the state of Illinois. He has never been given parole consideration, despite the fact that his attorneys told him that he would be afforded such consideration as part of the plea bargain deal. During his lifetime behind bars, Hirons has distinguished himself by becoming the first inmate in the state's history to graduate college, and he has become an accomplished painter, a skilled tailor, and a talented jailhouse lawyer. In April 2002, the UK's Guardian revealed that a man who has spent 56 years in jail in what his lawyers describe as one of the grossest miscarriages of justice in the history of the US could finally be freed. The report continued. A new investigation into the case of the man known as the Lipstick Killer indicates that the evidence against him was fabricated by detectives. His case has been taken up by the Northwestern University Center on Wrongful Convictions, which has a high success rate in having suspect verdicts overturned. The new investigation indicates that neither the ransom note nor the lipstick confession were written by Hirons. A fingerprint found in Brown's apartment is alleged to have been placed there by police. The investigation referred to in the Guardian article was conducted by a team led by Chicago attorney Jed Stone. Stone's team discovered that the entire case against Hirons was a product of outright fraudulence. Among the conclusions reached by the team, based on a thorough examination of the evidence, were all of the following. The hidden indentation, writing allegedly uncovered by Chicago Daily News artist Frank San Hamill was a fraud and a hoax. The handwriting on the Degnan ransom note was not Hirons. In fact, several independent experts say it was Richard Thomas's. The much-publicized lipstick message on the brown wall was not in Hiron's writing and was not written by the same person who wrote the Degnan note. The purported Hiron's fingerprint originally said to have been on the face of the Degnan note later was said to have been on the back, and its existence is not confirmable. The so-called bloody fingerprint found on a doorjamb in the brown apartment appears to have been a roll fingerprint like those seen on fingerprint cards in police stations and unlike those most often found at crime scenes. Analysis of the confessions revealed 29 inconsistencies between the confessions and the known facts of the crimes, a signature element in false confessions. Hirons was wrong about basic facts about the crimes, including locations, times, and related events. And so it goes as, decades later, police, courts, attorneys and the media continue to work in lockstep to manufacture cases against designated patsies. As for Wrestler, he formally began his law enforcement career in 1962, when he served as an agent supervisor for the U.S. Army's Criminal Investigations Division. 
He claims that he was first approached by the FBI, by a man who later became the assistant director at Quantico, while he was attending graduate school at Michigan State University. After spending nearly three decades of his life purportedly working to bring violent criminals to justice, one of his first actions after his retirement was to go to work on the Dahmer case, on the side of the defense. Chapter 19, Conclusions It's hard for me to believe that a human being could have done what I've done, but I know that I did it. Jeffrey Dahmer With the possible exception of school and workplace shootings, nothing better serves to facilitate the promotion of a law and order agenda than the palpable fear aroused by the sociopathic killer, a fear that propels the population into an every-man-for-himself mentality. Anyone, after all, could be a serial killer, hiding behind a mask of civility, a co-worker, a friend, a neighbor, even a family member. The Phoenix program has been referenced a number of times in past chapters, and its relevance to this discussion cannot be overstated. Phoenix was, by design, a psychological warfare operation. Its goal was, quite literally, to scare the hell out of the Vietnamese people, to such an extent that their will would be broken and they would accede to the demands of their would-be oppressors. The techniques employed were barbaric. Victims of the program were not merely assassinated, they were frequently raped, tortured, mutilated, dismembered and left posed in grotesque displays for their fellow villagers and family members to find. The crime scenes of the Phoenix program were, in other words, indistinguishable from the crime scenes of America's serial killers. In What Uncle Sam Really Wants, Noam Chomsky described the type of training given to U.S.-backed Salvadoran death squads, which were modeled after the Phoenix program's death squads, which in turn were modeled after the Nazi Einsatzgruppen death squads active during World War II. Draftees were made to kill dogs and vultures by biting their throats and twisting off their heads and had to watch as soldiers tortured and killed suspected dissidents, tearing out their fingernails, cutting off their heads, chopping their bodies to pieces and playing with the dismembered arms for fun. Chomsky also quotes Jesuit priest Daniel Santiago, who described the tragic results of such training. People are not just killed by death squads in El Salvador, they are decapitated and then their heads are placed on pikes and used to dot the landscape. Men are not just disemboweled by the Salvadoran treasury police, their severed genitalia are stuffed into their mouths. Salvadoran women are not just raped by the National Guard, their wombs are cut from their bodies and used to cover their faces. It is not enough to kill children, they are dragged over barbed wire until their flesh falls from their bones, while parents are forced to watch. Chomsky described one particularly macabre scene staged by the U.S.-trained Salvadoran National Guard. A peasant woman returned home to find her three children, her mother and her sister sitting around a table, each with its own decapitated head placed carefully on the table in front of the body, the hands arranged on top as if each body was stroking its own head. Finding it hard to keep the head of the woman's youngest child in place, the assassins had taken the 18-month-old baby's decapitated head and nailed the hands onto it. A large plastic bowl filled with blood was tastefully displayed in the center of the table. The goals of psychological warfare are no different here at home than they were in Southeast Asia or Central America, to scare the people, in this case the American people, into willingly surrendering their rights and accepting ever-increasing levels of repression, and to desensitize the people to horrendous levels of interpersonal violence. The ultimate goal, and one that we are rapidly approaching, is the destruction of all social bonds and the obliteration of any remaining sense of community, the complete atomization of society. 
famed conspiracy researcher May Brussel made a telling observation nearly three decades ago. In 1974, what we are now experiencing is the importation of the dreaded Operation Phoenix program into the United States through various created and manipulated acts of violence. The only solution to chaos, anarchy, and senseless violent acts will be a police state. We can expect the planned terrorization of the U.S. population to escalate rapidly. That terrorization has indeed escalated rapidly since the early 1970s. Serial killers are now an accepted and frequently glorified part of American pop culture. They have spawned a number of successful Hollywood movie franchises and their biographies crowd the shelves of America's bookstores. Sensational workplace shootings have become so cliché that the media now move effortlessly from one to the next. And the police state, needless to say, has advanced markedly in the last few decades. Since we began this saga in the state of Texas, and since we have revisited that state repeatedly, it seems only fitting that we should end there as well, especially since the current laws of that state, which are by far the harshest of any in the country, are due directly to the state's use of a serial killer to manipulate public opinion. The man's name was Kenneth McDuff, and his story begins on August 6, 1966, when he and an 18-year-old accomplice abducted and murdered three high school kids, one of whom was brutally raped and tortured. The triple murder was committed, strangely enough, just five days after Charles Whitman's rampage in nearby Austin, Texas. In November of that same year, McDuff was convicted and sentenced to die in the state's electric chair. Over the next six years, McDuff won a few stays of his scheduled execution, and then had his death sentence commuted to a life term in 1972 when the Supreme Court called a halt to all judicial executions. In 1987, legal action brought against the Texas prison system forced the state's courts to set limits on prison populations to ease the outrageously overcrowded and grossly inhumane conditions. State authorities responded by seeking a massive infusion of funds to simply build more prisons. Those efforts were stymied by voters. As a result, the state was forced to grant early parole to a substantial number of inmates. In a ridiculously unlikely scenario, one of those inmates was former dead man walking Kenneth McDuff, who walked away a free man on October 11, 1989. State officials apparently failed to notice the literally tens of thousands of nonviolent drug offenders who were clogging up the prison system when they claimed that they had run out of prisoners who could be offered parole. McDuff returned to Rosebud, Texas, not far from Waco, where it did not take him long to become the most reviled man in the Lone Star State. Just nine months after his release, he was arrested for pulling a knife and physically threatening a group of young black kids. That offense should have earned him a ticket back to prison for the remainder of his life sentence. Instead, the former death row inmate was released yet again just a few months later. Following his re-release, he repeatedly violated his parole by, among other things, consorting with prostitutes and buying, selling and using drugs. McDuff's parole officer inexplicably chose to let him operate without any meaningful supervision, even though the parolee was obviously someone who needed to be closely monitored. In October 1991, McDuff, working with an accomplice, committed the first of a series of brutal torture murders of girls in the Waco, Austin area. The first two victims were prostitutes, both of whom were seen with McDuff by witnesses shortly before their disappearances. One of the victims was reportedly in his vehicle when he ran a police roadblock. Nevertheless, police opted not to burden McDuff with any serious questions about the girl's disappearances. Unhindered by either the police or his parole officer, McDuff killed at least three more girls before he was apprehended in May 1992 following one of the largest manhunts in the state's history.
he was brought to trial in February 1993 and once again convicted of capital crimes. The conviction was assured when Macduff opted to take the stand in his own defense, thus allowing his prior convictions and death sentence into evidence. For his efforts, he received a new death sentence. Capital punishment had been reinstated in Texas just two years after its use was discontinued. The next year he received another. Kenneth Macduff's luck had run out. Just after 6 p.m. on November 17, 1998, he became one of the 152 inmates executed during the tenure of Governor George W. Bush. By that time, the condemned man had been credited with permanently changing the Texas criminal justice system. The public was understandably outraged that a condemned man had been set free to kill again. And they were encouraged to place the blame for that outrage on the well-intentioned prison reforms. In other words, the people of Texas had been sent a very clear message, any attempt to adopt humanitarian reforms in the Texas penal system will result in more Kenneth McDuff's being put back on the streets. That was the scenario that was successfully sold to the voting public. The result was an overhaul of the justice system that proved to be the most sweeping and reactionary in the state's history. To effect what was billed as the Texas Solution, legislators rammed through a flurry of bills dubbed the McDuff Laws that mandated tougher sentencing, exceedingly harsh parole guidelines, and an expenditure of an astounding $2 billion for the construction of new prisons. Those new prisons, along with the older ones, were soon bursting at the seams. The state of Texas is now the proud owner of what has been described as the largest prison system in the history of the free world. Texas incarcerates its citizens at double the rate of the rest of the nation, which is quite a startling statistic when one considers that the country as a whole has the second highest incarceration rate of any nation, and in absolute numbers, the United States has the world's largest prison population. Texas also hosts far more executions than any other state, nearly as many, in fact, as all the other states combined. Such is the legacy of a serial killer. The profile of serial killers that has been presented in this book is obviously one that is quite different from the one that has become a part of our collective conscience. Rather than the profile of a lone predator, driven by his own internal demons, we find instead a profile of controlled assassins and controlled patsies, conditioned and programmed by a variety of intelligence fronts, including military entities, psychiatric institutions, and satanic cults. There is a very real possibility that an underground network of satanic cults has largely replaced the Mafia's Murder Incorporated as America's premier murder for hire organization. Researcher and author Michael Newton has drawn that conclusion. In Raising Hell, he charges that the Black Cross, a faction of the process spawned 4P cult, functions specifically as a satanic murder, Inc. Consider the case of Thomas Creech, a member of a nationwide biker gang that was heavily involved in drug trafficking and cult rituals. In 1975, Creech admitted to 42 contract killings committed on behalf of the gang. Many of the murders had been performed, he said, as ritual human sacrifices. According to Creech's account, his 42 hits only qualified him for eighth place among the gang's contract killers. Consider also the case of Bernard Hunwick of Dade County, Florida. Following his arrest in 1981 for a series of murders, he confessed to police that he was the leader of a hit squad that had committed at least 100 additional contract killings. Are these merely deranged men suffering from delusions of grandeur? Or are they men who have given anyone willing to listen to their stories a peek into a world that few dare to imagine exists in modern-day America? The question is a disturbing one, but one that nonetheless begs for an answer. 
although the serial killer stories told herein vary considerably from the accounts usually told about these men, the vast majority of the information presented herein was derived from mainstream media sources, including newspaper and magazine articles, television documentaries, books released by reputable publishers, and true crime websites. The primary difference between this book and others in the genre is that the anomalous facts that invariably accompany the stories of serial killers have not been downplayed and explained away, but rather have been emphasized to illustrate that what are almost universally presented as trivial irregularities are, in fact, patterns that weave their way through the stories of America's most feared criminals. While it is relatively easy to ignore or dismiss such oddities in the cases of individual serial killers, it is much more difficult to do so when those oddities form connecting threads. The vast majority of serial killer chroniclers are, at best, misguided. Some are undoubtedly peddling deliberate disinformation. Some writers, like some law enforcement officials, seem to have devoted their entire careers to misrepresenting the true nature of serial murder, mass murder, assassination, and other high-profile crimes. Seeming to fit that profile is author Gerald Posner, who recently penned a grossly disinformational piece on the Boston Strangler case for Talk Magazine. Posner's article came directly on the heels of a joint press conference held by the relatives of both Albert DeSalvo and his last purported victim, Mary Sullivan. The families were demanding that the investigation be reopened and the long-suppressed police files released. Posner's article reads very much like an effort at damage control. His quick entry into the fray signals that the true nature of the Strangler case will continue to be covered up. Posner's past accomplishments include writing, exposés of the JFK assassination, Oswald did it, the Martin Luther King assassination, James Earl Ray did it, and Nazi doctor and Project Paperclip recruit Joseph Mengele. The most prolific of serial killer chroniclers is undoubtedly Anne Rule, the former employee of the Seattle Police Department. Rule is best known for her first book, an account of the alleged crimes of Ted Bundy entitled The Stranger Beside Me. The veteran crime writer had a unique perspective on the Bundy case, given that she was not writing about some enigmatic figure, but rather someone whom she had cared for for ten years, someone she referred to as my friend, Ted Bundy. Perhaps it is just a bizarre coincidence that the investigative journalist working on the biggest story of her career happened to be a friend and sometime co-worker of the man who would ultimately be held responsible for the six-year string of killings that she was researching. Even Rule, though has acknowledged the long-shot odds of such a coincidence occurring, logically, statistically, demographically, the chance that Ted Bundy and I should meet and become fast friends is almost too obscure to contemplate. Equally bizarre is that the two lived strangely parallel lives. Rule acknowledges that, even before the time that she claims they first met, she and Ted had lived in the same states at the same time, not once but many times, when they did allegedly meet, in 1971, a few years before the killings began, it was while both were working as counselors at the Seattle Crisis Clinic. Interestingly, a number of cult defectors, survivors have claimed that such services are frequently infiltrated by cult members, so that they may be used as cult recruitment tools. Not surprisingly, those contemplating suicide are particularly vulnerable to recruitment by cults, given that they have essentially given up hope on all other possible solutions to their problems. What then are we to conclude from the fact that Rule had almost as many connections to the victims as Bundy did? W. Hate vs. Supernatural Force guides our destinies, it has brought us together in some mind-expanding situations. I must believe this invisible hand will pour more chilled Chibli for us in less treacherous, more tranquil times to come. Love, Ted. Ted Bundy, writing to Anne Rule. Part 3, and in other news.
If they do their job and investigate what needs to be investigated, the rest of the pieces will fall into place and nobody is going to like what they find out. Therapist Mary Binkowski, they don't want this pedophile door opened even one crack. It is better to be accused of being a murderer than to have other things come out. Author Stephen Singular. Chapter 20, Boulder. Evil on this scale is impossible to comprehend. To know who murdered John Benet Ramsey is to know what world we live in. James R. Gaines, Time, January 20, 1997. In death, she looked more like the six-year-old child that she was than she had in many of the photos taken of her when she was alive. Her lifeless body was found lying on a cold basement floor, wrapped in a blanket. A strip of duct tape purportedly covered her mouth. Her right wrist, raised above her head, was loosely bound with a length of cord. The same type cord was wrapped around her neck with a broken paintbrush handle taken from her mother's art supplies fashioned into a makeshift garrote. To some investigators, her bindings looked staged. She was dressed in a sweatshirt that covered a long-sleeved undershirt. White pajama bottoms covered her white panties, which an autopsy report later revealed were stained with blood. Inspection with a blacklight indicated that there was semen on both of her thighs, but the medial examiner would make no mention of that in his report. To some investigators, it looked as though she had been redressed after her death. She had been sexually abused, severely beaten about the head, causing a massive skull fracture, and then strangled to death. Rigor mortis had fully set in and police on the scene reported the smell of decomposition. She had undigested food in her stomach and small intestine, identified as pieces of pineapple. On the palm of her left hand was drawn a small red heart. Around her neck was a chain bearing a crucifix. On her wrist was a bracelet, engraved on one side was her name, John Benet Ramsey, and on the other, the probable date of her death, December 25, 1996. The previous evening, John Benet had attended a party at the home of family friends with her parents, John and Patsy, and her brother Burke. The Ramsey family had returned home at 9.30 p.m., by which time John Benet had fallen asleep. She was carried inside and put to bed, allegedly last seen alive at around 10 p.m. Patsy Ramsey claims that she woke up the next morning sometime after 5 a.m. and headed down the back stairs, which were generally used only by those who were familiar with the house. There she found a ransom note that she quickly read before entering her daughter's room to find that the child was missing. At 5.52 a.m., she placed a frantic 911 call. It was later realized that Burke Ramsey's voice could be heard on the recording of that call, although John and Patsy steadfastly maintained that Burke was not yet up from bed when the call was placed. Boulder police arrived at the Ramsey home seven minutes later to find Patsy hysterical, and John collected, but pacing. This was the second time in just three days that a 911 call had been placed from the Ramsey home. The first was on the night of December 23rd, during a party attended by an estimated 100 guests drawn from the elite of Boulder Society. The guest list for that party has never been made public, nor has the reason for the first 911 call. The first officers to arrive at the Ramsey home were presented with the purported ransom note, two and a half handwritten pages of bizarre ramblings that were withheld from the press and the public for nine months. The note's authors demanded a ransom of exactly $118,000 in cash, which happened to be the amount of the Christmas bonus that John had just received. They claimed, rather preposterously, that they represented a small foreign faction. They warned that if their demands were not met, John Bonnet would be decapitated. The Ramseys were instructed to expect a telephone call that very morning between 8 o'clock and 10 a.m., but that call, of course, never came. 
For reasons that have never been adequately explained, the investigation was compromised from the very beginning. Officers inexplicably failed to secure the crime scene, allowing the family's pastor and a number of friends to freely come and go from the home. No effort was made to prevent contamination of any potential evidence. Detectives did not arrive on the scene until 8.10 a.m., over two hours after the first patrol officers arrived. It took another 12 hours for the coroner to arrive, and once there, he reportedly spent just 10 minutes examining the body and the crime scene. At around 10 a.m., detectives allowed John Ramsey to leave the house unescorted for over an hour. He was purportedly on a mission to pick up the mail, although it is unclear why such a trivial errand had such a sense of urgency at a time of family crisis. It is also unclear why it took John so long to complete the errand and why he chose to go alone when several family friends were available to accompany him. One of the most grievous and baffling errors committed by detectives was their failure to separate the Ramseys for questioning. Even though detectives had Patsy alone for over an hour, while John was running his errand, no one purportedly thought to question her. Just as baffling is the fact that there was no initial search of the house by either the family or police. When a detective on the scene finally suggested, at 1 p.m., that it might be a good idea to conduct a search, it had been nearly eight hours since the family had first discovered the disappearance, seven hours since police had arrived on the scene, and five hours since detectives had arrived, and yet no one had thought to search the home. Are we really to believe that after finding that ransom, note, the family immediately accepted that their beloved daughter had been taken from the home? What parent would not first conduct a room-by-room -room search of the house before accepting that eventuality? Indeed, what parent would not search the house repeatedly, in the desperate hope that, somehow, something had been overlooked during an earlier search? Amazingly enough, when it finally occurred to police that it might be a good idea to search the crime scene, they assigned that task to the prime suspect, John Ramsey. Joining John was good friend Fleet White, an oil company executive who had hosted the party the Ramseys attended the previous evening, and who the Ramseys placed a call to immediately after placing the 911 call. Ramsey and White quickly headed to the basement, where they almost immediately found John Bonet's body, demonstrating in doing so that no effort had previously been made to look for the missing girl, although White later claimed that he had checked the basement earlier and saw nothing out of the ordinary. John Ramsey promptly picked up his lifeless daughter and removed the tape from her mouth. Strangely though, the autopsy report later made no mention of tape residue around John Bonet's mouth. He then carried her upstairs and laid her on the floor. Patsy Ramsey immediately collapsed on the body of her child. A detective then moved the corpse and covered it with a blanket. In the space of just a few minutes, some of the most crucial evidence in the case had been hopelessly contaminated. Anne Louise Bardak, writing for Vanity Fair, quoted one officer's recollections of John and Patsy's reactions to the discovery of the body. What was interesting was when John Ramsey brought the body upstairs he never cried. But when he laid her down, he started to moan, while peering around to see who was looking. Patsy, he said, peer ed at him through splayed fingers, while making sobbing sounds. The officer described being haunted by the manner in which Patsy kept staring at him. He also noted that he never saw either of the Ramsey's attempt to comfort or console the other. The glaring incongruity of finding both a ransom note and the body of the purported kidnapping victim, coupled with what was viewed by many as inappropriate behavior by the Ramsey's, seemed to indicate that the crime was something other than a botched kidnapping. The preponderance of the evidence did not support the idea that an intruder was to blame. No footprints were observed outside of the home, even though snow covered much, but not all, of the ground. There were no signs of forced entry. 
The ransom note most likely originated from within the house. The pages appeared to have been torn from the Ramsey's own legal pad, and a pen found in a cup in the kitchen was likely the writing instrument. According to some reports, the first page in the legal pad, which was still attached, contained what appeared to be a false start at writing the ransom note. The unlikely scenario that we are asked to believe is that an intruder entered an occupied home seeking a victim to abduct, but he then inadvertently killed his intended victim, at which time he decided to hide the body in the basement, assuming that it wouldn't be found. He then searched the house for pen and paper before composing both an unfinished draft and a final ransom note, the latter of which rambled on at some length. The room where the body was found was in an out-of-the-way area of the spacious home's basement. Only a family member would have likely known of its existence. John Ramsey acknowledged that fact in a CNN interview, the room that we found her in is kind of a remote part of the basement. A casual guest would not know where that room is, Patsy added. It's, you know, kind of out of the way. Despite that early acknowledgement by the Ramseys themselves, the Ramsey spin team later vociferously denied that the room would have been difficult to locate for someone other than a family member. Steve Thomas, the lead detective on the case, concluded that Patsy Ramsey wrote the ransom note. He contends that of the 74 suspects whose handwriting samples were reviewed by investigators, Patsy was the only one that could not be excluded as a suspect. He has also accused her of deliberately changing some elements of her writing style after the murder, in order to disguise her authorship of the note. Several days after the discovery of John Bonet's body, the Ramsey family flew her remains to Atlanta, their former home, for burial. Services were held on New Year's Eve, after which John Bonet was laid to rest next to her half-sister Elizabeth, another of John Ramsey's daughters. The following day, John and Patsy made their infamous appearance on CNN, even while steadfastly claiming to be too grief-stricken to talk to the police. Patsy was heavily sedated and had been since the day of the murder. She later claimed that she was unable to remember anything that occurred during the weeks immediately following the discovery of the body. Burke Ramsey was reportedly kept heavily drugged after his sister's death as well. Allegations of prior abuse of the victim soon began to circulate in the media. Video footage of John Bonet's pageant appearances was aired endlessly. The footage offered no proof of the abuse allegations, but it did clearly demonstrate that the Ramseys had unconscionably marketed their offspring as some kind of hypersexualized woman child. There was, however, certainly nothing unusual about that on the kitty pageant circuit, as author Stephen Singular discovered when he ventured into that milieu. What he discovered is a world that few outside of the pageant circuit are familiar with, a world where extraordinarily young girls have had their hair dyed, their teeth capped, their young faces sculpted by plastic surgeons, their chests bunched up with tape to form the appearance of cleavage, and their eye color enhanced with contact lenses. Singular also discovered that photographing these prepubescent beauty queens in risque poses is a routine business undertaken by some of the most highly regarded child photographers in the country. John Bonet Ramsey was just one of an estimated 250,000 girls who are a part of this billion-dollar-a-year business that, by all appearances, caters primarily to the pedophilic tendencies of the adults who gravitate around the 3,000-child beauty pageants held every year. While John Bonet's longtime involvement in the child pageant business raises a number of questions, it does not directly answer the question of whether she had been molested either on the night of her death or before that time. The autopsy report, which was released in a severely redacted form on February 14th and in full on August 13th, made mention of chronic genital inflammation, foreign matter in the vagina, and epithelial erosion. 
A detective working the case swore in an affidavit that the coroner, John Meyer, told her that someone had definitely had sexual contact with the child. Meyer drew no such conclusions in his report. Independent experts who have examined the evidence have been far less circumspect. Dr. Robert Kirshner of the University of Chicago's pathology department noted that John Bonet's vaginal opening was twice what is normal for a girl her age. He also stated that the genital injuries indicate penetration, but probably not by a penis, and are evidence of molestation that night as well as previous molestation. Dr. Cyril Wecht, one of the most respected forensic pathologists in the country, told an interviewer, This to me is evidence of sexual abuse. I think any forensic gynecologist and forensic pathologist would agree with that, if she had been taken to a hospital emergency room, and doctors had seen the genital evidence, her father would have been arrested. There was one doctor who had numerous opportunities to observe that evidence. As was widely reported, John Bonet had been taken to her pediatrician no fewer than 27 times in the previous three to four years. The doctor claimed, rather disingenuously, that that was a normal rate of visitation for a child her age. He also claimed that he had never seen, during any of those visits, any evidence of abuse. That claim, however, was contradicted by the forensic evidence, which indicated chronic abuse. Cellmark Diagnostics in Germantown, Maryland, the CIA-linked forensic lab that was thrust into the national limelight during the O.J. Simpson trial, was unable to return any conclusive findings from any of the biological materials it received on the case. A number of other O.J. players surfaced in Buffalo as well. Criminologist Henry Lee was hired on as a forensics advisor to District Attorney Alex Hunter. DNA wonderkinds Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld joined the party as well. Oddly enough, with all the DNA all-stars on board, no DNA evidence has ever been produced in the case. From the beginning, when a gag order was placed on the officers working the case, there have been concerted efforts made to control the flow of information that the public has received about the murder of John Bonet Ramsey. Largely responsible for shaping public perception of the case has been the law firm retained almost immediately by the Ramseys, Haddon, Morgan, Muller, George, Mackey and Foreman. The tentacles of Hal Haddon's firm seemed to reach into every nook and cranny of the Ramsey case. Patsy Ramsey was represented by Haddon partners Patrick Furman and Patrick Burke. Burke was perhaps best known for having won acquittal for the white supremacist accused of killing Denver radio personality Alan Berg. Throughout the Ramsey investigation, he was frequently seen in the doorway of what was dubbed the John Bonet War Room, often chatting with Peter Hofstrom, an assistant to District Attorney Hunter, and Trip Demuth, one Hunter's prosecutors on the case. John Ramsey was represented by partners Brian Morgan and Lee Foreman. Morgan, who had once been nominated to serve as a justice on the Colorado Supreme Court, was regularly seen holding breakfast meetings with his old friend, Peter Hofstrom. Burke Ramsey was represented by yet another member of the Haddon team. The Boulder Police Department, led by Chief Tom Kobe, took the unusual step of retaining its own representatives in the form of a trio of private practice attorneys. One of the three, Robert Miller, had recently teamed with Haddon on a civil suit. Another of the trio, Daniel Hoffman, had previously been defended in a malpractice suit by Haddon partner Lee Foreman. In addition to the legal firepower, the Ramseys also hired a professional spokesman, Filling that post was Washington spin Meister Patrick Corton, who had served in the Reagan administration as the consultant for the Office of Personnel Management at the time that striking air traffic controllers were fired, and as the chief spokesman for the outrageously corrupt Ed Meese-run Justice Department. 
Also on Corton's resume were stints serving as mouthpieces for Iran-Contra conspirator Oliver North and for the Pharmaceutical Research Manufacturers of America. Another addition to the Ramsey Spin team was Premier FBI profiler John Douglas. One of his former colleagues, Greg McCrary, was also approached to join the team, but he declined the offer, after offering the opinion that the murder looked to him like a staged domestic homicide. Also on the Ramsey team were two private investigation firms whose gumshoes reportedly interviewed nearly every witness approached by Boulder police. Rounding out the team was a retired homicide investigator named Lou Smith, whose claim to fame was having purportedly solved the murder of Karen Grammer, the sister of actor and accused pedophile Kelsey Grammer. Smith was brought out of retirement by District Attorney Hunter, ostensibly to assist in gathering evidence against the Ramseys. Strangely enough though, he resigned a year and a half later and went to work for the Ramseys. When he switched sides, he brought with him a full accounting of all the state's evidence in the case, which, truth be told, the Ramseys had access to all along anyway. Boulder police loudly complained that Hunter repeatedly shared information with the Ramseys, even going so far as to supply the couple, before their being questioned by police, with copies of police reports and of their initial statements to investigators. John and Patsy were, therefore, able to ensure that their stories remained consistent with both the known facts and with their prior alibis. To their credit, it appears that at least some of the officers on Baldur's police force, which had a healthy distrust of Hunter and his sidekick Smith, attempted to honestly investigate the case. Their efforts were impeded, however, by not only the district attorney's office, but by the Denver Police Department and the FBI. Local officials resisted, unsuccessfully, the involvement of both agencies. In April 1997, Boulder police abruptly stopped sharing information with Hunter's office. Shortly after that, the computer containing the Ramsey case files in the aforementioned war room was hacked into by persons unknown. That same month, John and Patsy Ramsey submitted to their first formal police interviews, four full months after John Bonet had been laid to rest. The date of the interviews was, appropriately enough, April 30, 1997, Walpurgis on that very same day, a man named James Michael Thompson, who worked for a private company that specialized in transporting corpses, stole two pages from the morgue book at Boulder Community Hospital. Those two pages had recorded the arrival of John Bonet's body four months earlier. On May 21st, Thompson was charged with the theft of the pages. He was also charged with abuse of corpses, those charges arising from his macabre habit of grotesquely posing the corpses in his charge. On June 18th, the very same James Michael Thompson attempted to burn down the Ramsey home. Patsy had reportedly expressed a desire that the house be destroyed, and had vowed that she would never return there. Officials predictably announced that Thompson's actions had no connection to the murder of John Bonet. June also marked the beginning of the crumbling of the local political structure in Boulder, Colorado. City manager Tim Honey was the first casualty. Before long, a third of the city's council members had left office, the mayor had decided to move on, the head of the Chamber of Commerce had left office, and police chief Tom Kobe and police commander John Eller had both opted to step down. In his book on the case, Stephen Singular states, without elaboration, numerous powerful people had been in the Ramsey's home and had been exposed to John Bonet. Many of those powerful people were in the Ramsey home just two days before John Bonet's death, on the night that the first 911 call was placed. It is very unlikely that any of those people will ever be named, but it is quite possible that some of them were public officials who opted to step away from the limelight. What really happened to John Bonet Ramsey on that fateful day in 1996? And why did the case become such a cause celeb? 
After all, the killing of a child in this country is certainly not an uncommon occurrence, nor is it normally an event deemed worthy of national media attention. As the Village Voice reported in 1997, the United States has, per capita, the highest rate of child homicide in the world. None of the world's people slaughter their children more frequently, or more cavalierly, than do Americans. With the notable exceptions of the occasional Polyclos or Adam Walsh, few of these murder victims are deemed worthy of anything approaching a full-scale media circus. What then are we to make of the JonBenet Ramsey case? The family would like you believe that it was nothing more than a badly botched kidnapping plot. That hardly seems likely, however. The kidnapping scenario was most likely conceived after the fact, to cover up the accidental or intentional death of the child. The plan probably called for the body to be disposed of and the disappearance blamed on an unknown abductor. For whatever reason though, the body could not be disposed of. When it became apparent that a search would quickly yield the girl's remains, John Ramsey made sure that he was the one to make the discovery, thereby compromising the crime scene and nullifying any forensic evidence linking him to the body. None of that, of course, answers the question of why John Bonet Ramsey was killed. One theory holds that Patsy Ramsey killed John Bonet in a fit of rage resulting from a bedwetting incident. While that scenario is not necessarily absurd, as the Ramseys have labeled it, it does seem to fall short of adequately explaining the crime. Another theory holds that John Ramsey killed John Bonet accidentally when his ongoing abuse got out of hand. While that is probably closer to the truth, it still appears to fall short of providing a full explanation. Stefan Singular has put forth a more disturbing theory, he believes that JonBenet was killed because of her involvement in a child pornography and prostitution ring. Singular theorizes that one of the parents was involved, essentially acting as a pimp in selling the young girl to the ring. The cover-up of her death took place, according to Singular, when the guilty party had to conceal that fact from the other parent, who was not involved. While Singular is on the right track, his analysis still probably falls a little short of the mark. The truth likely is that both of the Ramseys were involved in pimping their daughter out to other pedophiles. The massive cover-up that has shrouded the investigation from day one is indicative of the type of systemic corruption that leads to these types of cases being routinely covered up. Such a far-reaching effort certainly could not have been orchestrated by one parent working to fool the other. Rumors of child pornography have surrounded the case from the earliest days of the investigation. Police records indicate that warrants were sought to search the Ramsey home for pornographic materials. The San Jose Mercury News reported that police investigators had a strong initial suspicion that someone in the family had an interest in child pornography, three days after the girl's bludgeoned body was discovered in the basement of her family's upscale home, Boulder, Colorado. Police seized computers, computer disks, CD-ROMs, and video and still photography equipment, according to the search warrants. At least 150 videotapes were seized from the home. It was also alleged that John Ramsey had been seen frequenting a seedy Denver porno shop. In the tabloid press, it was reported that the computers at Access Graphics were loaded with child pornography. While the credibility of that story may be in dispute, it is interesting to note that after the murder, Access Graphics added guards and greatly increased security at its headquarters. A California woman recently presented to Boulder Police, through her therapist, information that she claimed to have about the case. The therapist, Mary Binkowski, spoke of a pedophile ring operating in the Boulder area. She identified her client of 10 years as a past victim of the ring, which she said had direct links to the Ramsey family. She also said that her client had provided police with the names of several people who had witnessed the murder of JonBenet. 
Binkowski also claimed that the witness had provided evidence of the ongoing abuse of other children. The unidentified witness was interviewed by agents of the FBI. Shortly after that, she went into hiding, afraid for her life. The Boulder Sheriff's office portrayed the woman as a crank, claiming that she had a history of making false reports. The woman, however, maintained that while she had indeed made previous reports, they were not false reports, but rather uninvestigated reports. There is no indication that the leads she supplied on the Ramsey case were ever investigated. Could such a ring have existed in Boulder? And if so, could that have provided the hidden subtext of the JonBenet Ramsey murder? Conclusive evidence is hard to come by, but a few tantalizing bits and pieces have surfaced. Randy Simons was considered the best, and the most expensive, child photographer in the Boulder area. At least one pageant mother reported to author Singular that Simons had approached her about shooting nudes of her daughter. She declined the offer. How many pageant mothers consented to such offers is unknown. In June 1996, just months before JonBenet's death, Simons took what were described as covergirl shots of the oft-photographed beauty queen, who on several occasions had been photographed with Daphne White, her best friend and the daughter of Fleet White. Just after JonBenet's death, Simons abruptly left his wife and daughter in Denver and moved to a remote area of eastern Colorado. No one seemed to know why he had done so. He was said to be extremely distraught over the murder. He reportedly placed several frantic calls to friends, during which he expressed a profound fear for his life. He wrote an article for Stagelines, a pageant newsletter, in which he claimed that he was being pursued by paramilitary types. He also expressed concern to the newsletter's publisher about the possibility of someone releasing inappropriate photos of JonBenet. When the Wonderland raids swept through a number of American cities, one of those arrested was Richard Bruce Thomas, a computer consultant living in F.T. Collins, Colorado, about an hour's drive from the Ramsey home. Thomas was found shot to death in his home on September 5, 1998. His death was ruled, as always, a suicide. When a man named James Parton was arrested on charges of distributing child pornography on the Internet, his Columbus, Ohio home was found to contain a photograph of John Bonet Ramsey. Parton was a prime suspect in the 1983 disappearance of a 14-year-old girl from Idaho Springs, Colorado. Stephen Singular took some of these scraps of evidence that he had collected and presented them to District Attorney Alex Hunter, and then to Detective Sergeant Tom Wickman of the Boulder Police Department, and then to Ellis Armistead, one of the Ramsey's private investigators. All three took his information but offered nothing in return, and all three chose not to investigate the leads that he provided. What could prove to be a key piece of evidence in the case has been largely ignored by the media and by various theories of the crime, the undigested food in JonBenet's stomach and small intestine, which indicated that the girl had eaten in fairly close proximity to her death. According to the Ramsey's version of events, JonBenet had eaten earlier in the evening, while at the White's party, but she had not eaten at home before being put to bed, since she was, according to the Ramsey's, already asleep. The existence of the largely undigested food matter has, therefore, never been satisfactorily explained. In fact, it has been almost entirely ignored by most theorists, although some have tried to explain it away with the theory that JonBenet's would-be abductors fed her before killing her. Such theories require belief in the dubious notion that although the mysterious intruders forgot to bring materials to write a ransom note, or an already prepared ransom note, they did remember to pack a snack for their abductee. A more reasonable explanation for the undigested food is that JonBenet was killed shortly after she was known to have last eaten. She was, to be more specific, killed before the Ramsey family returned home from the party they had been attending. 
Such a scenario would help to explain some of the other facts and persistent rumors that have surrounded the case. For example, it was mentioned previously that John Bonet's body, despite being in the cold confines of the basement of the Ramsey home, had decomposed to the point of emitting a noticeable odor. It is unlikely that decomposition would have advanced to that stage had John Bonet been killed between 10 p.m., when she was allegedly put to bed, and 5 a.m., when her disappearance was allegedly discovered. Some investigators believe that John Bonet's clothing was changed after her death. The Ramseys have acknowledged that she was in fact changed before being put to bed, after the family had returned home from the party. If she was already dead at that time, then she was indeed redressed after her murder. It is interesting to note here that in the Ramsey's own telling of the story, the limp figure of John Bonet was carried into the house upon the family's return home. Some investigators also believe that some elements of the crime scene, particularly the ligatures, were staged. That is also consistent with the child having been killed elsewhere and then deposited in the basement. It is possible that the ligatures were added after the fact, when it became apparent that it was not going to be possible to dispose of the body. It is also possible that the ligatures were an artifact of the party, necessarily loosened when the body was redressed and then retied. The claim by the California woman that there were numerous witnesses to the murder is also consistent with John Bonet having been killed at the party. One of those witnesses would have been sibling Burke, who some suspect witnessed or was involved to some degree in the killing. That would explain the Ramsey family's concerted efforts to shield the boy from the media and from inquisitive police. The Ramseys claim that the extraordinary security afforded Burke is intended to protect him from the still-at-large killer. As a final note on the Ramsey case, John and Patsy have on occasion publicized the fact that a stun gun was possibly used to incapacitate John Bonet prior to her death. That fact is supposed to bolster the intruder theory, since the Ramseys claim that they have never owned a stun gun. One of the videotapes seized from their home, however, included instructions on how to use, of all things, a stungen. Chapter 21, Atlanta. I have never believed Wayne Williams killed not only Yusuf, I don't believe Wayne Williams killed anybody. Camille Bell, the mother of victim Yusuf Bell, I don't believe he did it any more than I'd go out there and shoot somebody myself. Willie Mae Mathis, the mother of victim Jeffrey Mathis, Wayne Williams ain't doing no time for killing my child. He ain't doing no time for killing nary a child. Eunice Jones, the mother of victim Clifford Jones. As the cases of Mark Dutru and many others have amply illustrated, there can be a very fine line between organized pedophilia and serial murder. Perhaps nowhere was that point more clearly made than in what was at the time America's murder capital, Atlanta, Georgia, during the killings commonly referred to as the Atlanta Child Murders. By this time, it should not come as any great surprise that the Atlanta killings did not follow the patterns suggested by serial killer profiles. First of all, the victims of the child murders were not all children, six of them were in their twenties, and there were many more in that age bracket who should have made the victims list. The list, as the official tally of victims was dubbed, was one of the more controversial aspects of the investigation, and one that needs to be addressed in order to put the remainder of this discussion in context. A number of researchers have charged that the list was subject to constantly shifting parameters, which resulted in a number of victims whose cases appeared to be connected being excluded from the official victim count. Chet Detlinger, a former public safety commissioner and assistant to the chief of the Atlanta Police Department and the co-author of the list, maintains that 63 pattern victims were arbitrarily left off the official tally, more than twice as many as actually did make it. He also argues that 25 of those victims were killed after the arrest of Wayne Williams, the purported Atlanta child murderer. 
The county's chief medical examiner at the time of the killings, Joseph Burden, has said much the same thing. By no means did the deaths of young black children and young black men stop with the arrest and conviction of Wayne Williams. Among the names that were arbitrarily omitted were a number of adult victims. Before March 1981, nearly two years after the killings had begun, adults were not deemed to fit the profile and were therefore excluded from the list. After the parameters were changed to allow the first adult victim to be included, five more victims in their 20s were added in rapid succession over the next eight weeks, but none of those killed in the prior 20 months who otherwise fit the pattern were retroactively added. Similarly, many female victims were excluded even though two of the earliest list victims were young girls. A number of young boys were excluded as well, for reasons that appear to have been entirely arbitrary. There is a considerable amount of uncertainty, therefore, as to how many victims there actually were, and when the killings began and ended. This discussion will be limited to the 29 officially recognized victims, though it is quite apparent that at least as many more were deliberately omitted from the list. As Public Safety Commissioner Dick Hand has acknowledged, the list that was created by the task force, in my own personal opinion, was an artificial list. According to the artificial, but government-sanctioned, list, the victims of the Atlanta, child, murders ranged in age from 7-year-old Latonia Wilson to 28-year-old John Porter. Males and females were both represented, though a large majority were male. All of the victims, significantly, were African-American. There was no consistent pattern to the killings, as medical examiner Burden acknowledged, there was no signature that said this case and this case and this case are people that have been murdered or killed by the same individual. The first victim, 14-year-old Ed Smith, was shot. All the rest were killed with weapons of opportunity. The most common cause of death was asphyxiation, with strangulation a close second. Two victims had their heads bludgeoned with blunt objects, two others were stabbed to death, another was drowned, and young Aaron Weich broke his neck after being pushed or dropped from a bridge. One victim's body was never recovered and several others were too badly decomposed by the time of their discovery to determine the cause of death. There was no discernible pattern to the cases that were added to the list, beyond the fact that all the victims were young African Americans who met with violent deaths. As Los Angeles Times reporter and the list co-author Jeff Prue put it, there was no pattern, per se, that I could really see, other than that they were all dead. But while there was no pattern connecting the manner of the abductions and killings, there were a number of troubling connections between the victims, most of whom lived in the same four inner-city neighborhoods. Those connections were consistently, and seemingly deliberately, ignored by the police. The first two victims, young teens Ed Smith and Alfred Evans, were friends who spent a good deal of time together. They disappeared just four days apart, strongly suggesting that the victims were known to the killers and were definitely not randomly selected. That would become all the more apparent as the body count mounted. More than one witness reported seeing the fourth victim, Yusuf Bell, getting into a car with his mother's former husband. The man was considered a suspect in the boy's disappearance for more than a year, but was ultimately cleared of any involvement. He would not be the only close friend or family member to become a prime suspect. The body of the next victim, Angel Lanier, showed clear signs of sexual abuse, although that evidence was notably downplayed and deemed insignificant by authorities. As the story continued to unfold, however, it became increasingly apparent that sexual abuse of the child victims was indeed of considerable significance. Like Yusuf Bell, Jeffrey Mathis was also last seen getting into a car, <coughs> described as blue by witnesses. According to another witness, Jeffrey was again in a blue car, and still very much alive, a couple days later. 
This was just the first of many bizarre episodes that suggested that at least some of the victims were not killed immediately, but were kept alive for an indeterminate period of time following their abductions. That were other indications as well that at least some of the victims were not killed right away, some of them were found wearing different clothing than what they had been wearing when they disappeared, and some had undigested food in their stomachs that was not consistent with the meals they were known to have eaten before their abductions. Shortly after Jeffrey's disappearance, other boys at his school reported men in a car attempting to lure them away from the school grounds. They described it as a blue car. While that certainly did not amount to a positive identification, it did represent a potential break in the case. The boys reported the incident, and even memorized the car's license plate number to give to police, who nevertheless declined to investigate the lead. The next victim, Eric Middlebrooks, received a phone call at 10.30 on a Sunday night and, upon hanging up the phone, immediately grabbed his tools and raced out the door, claiming that he suddenly had to repair his bike. He was never seen alive again. The questions of who could have called the boy and what they could have said to him to lead him so eagerly to his death are ones that have never been answered. The next victim who later became a name on the list added a rather peculiar twist to the case, yet again reminiscent of the notorious Lindbergh abduction. Seven-year-old Latonia Wilson was allegedly kidnapped from her occupied home, but an eyewitness account of the abduction painted a scenario that could not possibly have occurred. Perhaps significantly, the disappearance occurred on June 22nd, the summer solstice. A friend of the young girl's family was initially considered a prime suspect in the abduction and murder, a reasonable suspicion considering the bizarre and implausible circumstances of her kidnapping. The targeting of the man by police, however, provoked outrage in Atlanta's black community, as had the police targeting of Camille Bell's former husband. The death of the next victim, Aaron Weich, was initially deemed accidental, until it became obvious that the official finding that the boy had fallen was, to say the least, extremely unlikely. Anthony Carter reportedly disappeared while playing hide-and-seek outside his home around 1 a.m., though one wonders who allows a nine-year-old to play hide-and-seek outside in the middle of the night. Some police investigators apparently pondered that very question, concluding that the story told by the boy's mother seemed rather unlikely. She was subsequently arrested, then released and thereafter tailed in question for several months, eventually leading her to move out of the area. Those actions by the police further enraged the citizens of Atlanta. In mid-July 1980, an activist group formed by the parents of victims finally pressured the police into linking the killings and launching a serious investigation, or at least the appearance of one. The disappearances and murders had begun at least a year earlier and at least 11 lives had already been taken. Police reluctantly announced the formation of a special task force on July 17th. Before the end of the month, another victim, Earl Terrell, disappeared. His aunt promptly received a call from an unidentified person who delivered the following cryptic message, I've got Earl. Don't call the police. Shortly thereafter, she received a second call, I've got Earl. He's in Alabama. It will cost you $200 to get him back. I will call back on Friday. There is no indication that Earl was in fact taken to Alabama. There is also no evidence that anyone is actually stupid enough to kidnap a child and transport him out of the state for the purpose of raising a couple hundred dollars in ransom money. Those bizarre phone calls though served a very important purpose, they immediately made the case a federal matter. The task force was barely on its feet when the FBI rode into town to take over the investigation, with some 200 FBI agents descending on the city of Atlanta. Suddenly, everyone wanted to be involved in investigating what police had previously considered to be a batch of unrelated violent deaths. 
the nation's top big city, detectives were flown into town and hailed as supercops come to save the day. The FBI sent in profilers in what was billed as the first real test of the science of profiling. The Bureau's self-styled experts predicted, not surprisingly, that a black serial killer was responsible for the murders. Before the investigation was wrapped up, no less an authority than Vice President George Bush even came to town, ostensibly to coordinate federal and local efforts and to make sure the investigation stayed on track. Citizens, meanwhile, began organizing themselves into bat patrols, vigilante groups who patrolled the streets of their neighborhoods wielding baseball bats. The police quickly saw fit to break these groups up. In the ensuing months, community leaders organized search teams, eventually numbering thousands of volunteers. Often working alongside these mostly African-American search teams were groups of unidentified white volunteers, attired in flak jackets and carrying rifles, walkie-talkies, and various other pieces of paramilitary equipment. No explanation has been offered for the presence of these curiously equipped men. In addition to federalizing the investigation, Earl Terrell's disappearance was significant for another reason, it exposed the dark underbelly of the Atlanta killings. Earl disappeared after leaving a public swimming pool that was directly across from a house that was known to be the hub of a child pornography ring. The owner of the house, John David Wilcoxon, was ultimately convicted for his complicity in the ring. He was never, however, seriously considered as a suspect in Terrell's disappearance, despite a witness placing Earl at Wilcoxon's house on several occasions, and despite the fact that literally thousands of child pornography photos were seized from Wilcoxon's home. The next victim, Clifford Jones, was found dead alongside a dumpster behind a laundromat in late August 1980. No fewer than three young witnesses reported seeing the laundromat manager, James Brooks, go into the back room accompanied by a black male youth. One of them even saw the boy beaten, anally raped and strangled to death by Brooks and another man, Calvin Smith. Other witnesses saw Brooks, wearing a hooded ceremonial robe, carry a large object out to the trash where the body was later discovered. Brooks candidly admitted to police that the boy had been in the laundromat around the time of his death, but he steadfastly denied any involvement in the murder. Notably though, he failed two polygraph examinations. The police nevertheless cleared him as a suspect, claiming that the eyewitness to the killing was retarded. They did not bother to explain all the other witness accounts or the failed polygraphs. At around the time of Jones' death, the task force finally began to assemble the infamous list. Darren Glass was the next name added to it. Shortly after his disappearance, his mother received an emergency breakthrough call from someone claiming to be her son, but when she picked up the line to speak to him, it had gone dead. Around that same time, an explosion at a daycare center in one of Atlanta's black neighborhoods took the lives of four more kids. Investigators quickly concluded that the explosion was accidental, the result of a boiler malfunction. Many in the neighborhood though, and in other neighborhoods where children were under siege, remained unconvinced. Charles Stevens was the next victim to disappear. When his remains were discovered shortly thereafter, the crime scene was quickly contaminated by an officer who opted to toss a blanket over the body. The contamination of crime scenes was, alas, a fairly common occurrence throughout the investigation. Shortly after Charles's disappearance, a drug dealer and police informant told investigators that he had seen the body of a black youth in the backseat of a customer's car. He also reported that he knew the man to be a pedophile who had on occasion offered him cash to procure young male prostitutes. Needless to say, this lead was not followed up on by police. 
Next to disappear was Aaron Jackson, a friend of both earlier victim Aaron Weich and future victim Patrick Rogers, who disappeared just nine days later. Rogers was the oldest victim to date at 15. He was connected to at least a dozen other victims on and off the list. Luby Getter disappeared next. Like Earl Terrell, Getter was connected to child pornographer Will Coxon, as well as to another adult pedophile who was later connected to William Barrett, one of the last names to be put on the list. Three weeks after Getter's disappearance, his friend Terry Pugh disappeared as well. Pugh's body yielded some of the best forensic evidence of any of the killings, fingerprints. The prints were not left by Wayne Williams, a fact that neither side would mention at trial. The next victim, Patrick Baldazar, called the task force shortly before his disappearance and expressed fear for his life. His teacher received a call not long after he vanished from a loudly sobbing boy who did not identify himself, though the teacher suspected that the boy was Patrick. The next addition to the list was Curtis Walker. An uncle with whom Walker lived was murdered as well, but he did not make the list. Next was Joseph Bell, who knew several other victims on the list. Shortly after he was reported missing, a co-worker reported receiving a call from the boy during which Joseph begged for help and stated that he was almost dead. Days later, Bell's mother received a call from a woman who claimed to be holding the boy. The woman called again later and managed to talk to Bell's two siblings. The mother reported both calls to the task force, but never got a call back. Ten days after Bell's disappearance, his friend Timothy Hill disappeared as well. Hill was later connected to earlier victims Alfred Evans, Jeffrey Mathis, Patrick Baldazar, and Anthony Carter. Hill was known to frequent a home owned by a known pedophile named Thomas Terrell. At least two witnesses, one a neighbor of Terrell, placed Hill at the house around the time of his disappearance. Terrell admitted to police that he knew the boy and had previously engaged in sexual acts with him. Although what he admitted to was a crime, he was not arrested nor was he ever seriously considered as a suspect. Larry Rogers and Eddie Duncan, who was connected to earlier victim Patrick Rogers, were the first adults to make the list. They were followed by Michael McIntosh, who knew both Joseph Bell and final victim Nathaniel Cater. McIntosh had been seen on numerous occasions at Thomas Terrell's house. John Porter disappeared next, though he was not put on the list until much later, as part of an effort to build a dubious fiber evidence case against Williams. Jimmy Payne was next on the list, followed by William Barrett. Barrett was connected to the same unidentified white male pedophile who was connected to earlier victim Luby Getter. Police records later revealed that Barrett had reported being in fear for his life after receiving threats from someone he described as a hit man. The final victim to make the list was Nathaniel Cater, an admitted drug dealer and homosexual prostitute. The discovery of Cater's body on May 24, 1981 provided the first evidence throughout the two-year killing spree that allegedly linked Williams to the crimes. He had been observed on a bridge two days earlier at the time a splash allegedly occurred in the river below. Two days later, Cater's body was discovered downstream from the bridge, which purportedly pointed to Williams's guilt. Some investigators do not believe, however, that Williams ever stopped his car on that bridge or that there was a splash that night. It has been noted that the officer filing the report did not immediately report the splash, nor attempt to verify the source of the alleged splash, nor request equipment to drag the river and recover the alleged object. It is certainly possible that the entire incident was fabricated to tenuously link Wayne Williams to the murders. Significantly, the medical examiner was initially unable to ascertain the time of Cater's death, but he later accommodated police by placing it in accordance with the bridge story. 
no fewer than four eyewitnesses, however, came forward to report that they had seen Cater very much alive the day after the alleged bridge incident. That crucial exculpatory evidence was never introduced at trial. Williams's attorneys later claimed that they were never informed of the existence of the witnesses, but that claim is rather dubious considering their overall performance at trial. Williams was not immediately arrested following the infamous bridge incident, but he was publicly identified as the new prime suspect, thus beginning a two-and-a-half-week press circus at the Williams's family home and a trial by media that found Wayne guilty long before he ever set foot in a courtroom. This occurred despite the fact that there was a noticeable lack of evidence tying Williams to any of the murders. The local district attorney was keenly aware of that fact and was therefore not too eager to have Williams arrested. The FBI, however, along with federal and state officials, had no problem with pinning all of the murders on Williams. Local authorities were duly pressured into making the arrest. Completely ignored was the rather obvious fact that the suspect did not bear even a passing resemblance to any of the witness descriptions on file with the task force or to any of the composite sketches that had been created. Though publicly branded the Atlanta child murderer, Wayne Williams was indicted and he faced trial for the murders of two adults, Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Payne. He was never indicted for the murders of any of the children that were slain. Evidence of their murders was allowed into court, however. Despite the fact that there was never enough evidence to build a case against Williams for the crimes, the trial judge allowed testimony about ten other killings. As outraged Georgia Supreme Court Justice George Smith later noted, Williams assumed an unenviable position as a defendant who, charged with two murders, was forced to defend himself as to twelve separate killings. Besides that inflammatory testimony, which would have been disallowed in any legitimate courtroom, the state's case was built almost entirely on highly suspect fiber evidence. That evidence, purportedly the strongest element of the prosecution's presentation, had seemingly been planted to provide the state with some semblance of a case. It was claimed, for example, that fibers from Williams's car were found on one victim who had disappeared before Williams had even purchased the car. It was also claimed that Clifford Jones' body yielded fibers linking him to Williams, though all the other available evidence indicated that Jones had in fact been killed at a laundromat by James Brooks. Another rather curious fact about the trial is that one of the two men whom Williams was formally accused of killing, Jimmy Ray Payne, was not even initially considered a murder victim. The cause of death listed on his original death certificate was undetermined. Recognizing, however, that a homicide prosecution requires an actual homicide victim, the state later had the death certificate altered. The legitimacy of Williams's defense attorneys was suspect before the trial even began on January 6, 1982. Despite the amazingly high profile of the case and the wholesale vilification of Williams by the local media, no request was made for a change of venue, an incomprehensible oversight for anyone truly motivated to protect the rights of the accused. Despite the best efforts of the state to railroad Williams with a largely fraudulent circumstantial case, he likely would have been acquitted if his defense team had not made another crucial error by sending Wayne to the stand in his own defense. Williams performed well on the stand for the first two days, until his attorneys compounded their error by urging their client to be combative. Jurors later described Williams as his own worst enemy for the performance that followed. On February 27, the promising young man who had once been installed as student council president by Andrew Young was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. He received two consecutive life sentences as punishment for crimes that he clearly did not commit. There is reason to believe, however, that Williams was involved in the pedophile operations that formed the backdrop for the murders. 
By profession, Wayne Williams was a freelance photographer and a self-styled music promoter who spent much of his free time trolling for talent among Atlanta's black youth. He was also known to impersonate a police officer, a talent that had once gotten him arrested at the age of 18. According to reports that author-investigator Chet Detlinger received from neighbors, Wayne and his father responded to the alleged bridge incident by performing a major cleanup job around their house. They carried out boxes and carted them off in the station wagon. They burned negatives and photographic prints in the outdoor grill. It does not require a great deal of imagination to figure out what sort of photographs it was that Williams had been taking. Nevertheless, there is no evidence to suggest that Williams was responsible for the deaths of Nathaniel Cater or Jimmy Payne, let alone the other 21 victims whose murders were declared solved following his conviction. Even before the trial began, there were clear indications that the state considered all the killings solved. Emergency hotline posters had been taken down from phone booths, buses and schools, reward signs had also been taken down, and extra police patrols had been withdrawn. The task force had been pared down to just six remaining members, and most of the media circus had left town. None of the pedophiles connected to the case were ever seriously considered as suspects, and certainly none were ever charged with any of the murders. There is little doubt, though, that many of the victims were involved in a large and well-protected child prostitution and child pornography ring. Unanswered, though, are the questions of why, and by whom, they were killed. Many have theorized that the Ku Klux Klan, as well as the CIA and the FBI, were involved in the killings. FBI documents purportedly reveal that a Klansman named Charles Sanders confessed to involvement in many of the killings as a way to incite a race war. While inflaming racial tensions may well have been a goal of the killings, however, it seems unlikely that that was the primary motivation. Another motive was identified by a witness named Shirley McGill, whose story was made public by Roy Innes, head of the Congress of Racial Equality, which had assisted in an independent investigation into the murders. McGill, a Miami cocktail waitress, claimed that the murders were perpetrated by a cult involved in drug trafficking, child pornography, and Satanism. The cult, she said, was composed of members in both Georgia and Florida. One of the leaders was her part-time lover, Vietnam veteran Parnell Tram. She claimed that she had witnessed both animal and human sacrifices and she spoke of business murders that the cult had committed. Wayne Williams was identified as a member of the cult whom she had seen filming rituals, but not directly participating in the ritual homicides. McGill claimed to be a bookkeeper for the cult's drug trafficking operations, which involved purchasing used cars in Miami, packing them with drugs, and then delivering them to Atlanta and Houston. She also said that the ring had police protection and that at least one funeral home was complicit in disposing of bodies. Kors Innes delivered this story to the press in April 1981 and he was, not surprisingly, greeted with skepticism and derision. With its witness under attack, Corps commissioned a battery of tests to gauge her veracity. McGill passed two polygraph examinations, repeated her story under hypnosis, and was declared sane by examining psychiatrists. She was also able to lead investigators to remote sites that had clearly been used for the performance of rituals. A few months before Coors' attempt to publicize McGill's story, police had received an anonymous call that led them to an abandoned home in southwest Atlanta. Neighbors that were questioned reported strange comings and goings at odd hours. Investigators reported being sickened by an odor, like decaying flesh, though no bodies were found. Detectives did find children's clothing, along with an axe, a hatchet, and two Bibles nailed to the wall, both open to passages on human sacrifice. 
Professor Carl Rashke has written that, in the neighborhoods where the killings occurred, a number of children have told police about satanic sex abuse in which, they insist, they were compelled to drink both animal and human blood. Some months after McGill came forward, searchers stumbled upon a ritual site littered with the carcasses of slaughtered animals. Prominent features of the site included a stone altar stained with blood and a 12-foot-high charred cross. It is not inconceivable that the killings were performed as human sacrifices. Some reports hold that several of the parents reported to independent investigators that the bodies of their children had crosses carved into their foreheads and chests. It is also not inconceivable that the ritual killings were recorded as snuff films. There is another, even darker, scenario that merits brief mention here, even if it is almost entirely speculative. Atlanta is home to the Center for Disease Control, CDC, a prime suspect among conspiracy researchers as the origin of the AIDS virus. The Atlanta child killings began, strangely enough, just as the first cases of AIDS, yet to be identified, began surfacing in a few of America's big cities. There is a possibility that some of the young victims, known to be involved in sexual activities with both adult pedophiles and other children, were deliberately infected with the virus to track the progress of the disease and determine its communicability through sexual contact. Several of the unindicted pedophile suspects died from the disease in the years following the murders, including James Brooks in 1987, and some of the most suppressed details of the case hint at some type of medical testing of some of the victims. A law enforcement memo that surfaced during the investigation, for example, described the castration of some victims, and a mortician's assistant reported finding the presence of syringe marks in the genitals of many of the victims. Were these children used as human guinea pigs for the most far-reaching biological warfare project ever conceived by man? If so, then they would certainly have had to be eliminated after serving their purpose. After all, it would have been difficult to explain a number of black children dropping dead from an emerging virus thought at the time to be affecting only white gay males. It could be that the young victims were doomed even had they not met with violent deaths. And it could be that their deaths were just the opening salvo of a final solution that is now quietly killing millions. I happen to believe that the numbers of child prostitutes are far greater than we can imagine. I don't have a doubt in my mind that were we to adequately police this problem that we would find that it is far more pervasive than any of us ever have imagined. Atlanta Mayor Bill Campbell, commenting on the prevalence of child exploitation in his city, NPR News Morning Edition, May 9, 2001. Chapter 22, Role Models no habit is more easily acquired than marred savoring, eat one, delicious, eat another, no two taste alike, but all are subtle and the effect is somewhat that of an olive. Donatine Alphonse Francois, describing the joys of, quite literally, eating shit. Long before Marc Dutru, there was Donatine Alphonse Francois. Francois was born into an atmosphere of power and privilege, his mother was a relative of the ruling administration and his father served as an ambassador. When Donatine was just two years old, he was sent to live with his paternal grandmother and her five daughters in what has been described as a sexually promiscuous atmosphere. The women reportedly lavished attention on the boy, though it is debatable just what sort of attention it was. After two years there, Donatine was sent to live with his father's brother, who was ostensibly a man of the cloth. Francois' uncle was rather notorious for frequently engaging in decadent sex with numerous male and female partners. He also had a considerable collection of pornographic literature. The young boy spent a considerable amount of time reading through his uncle's collection. After six years there, he was uprooted once again and sent to live at a religious prep school. 
At the school, he was subjected to harsh and frequent punishment from his caretakers, including being frequently sodomized. The young man was also taught the importance of confessing his sins as the means to identify and eliminate personal weaknesses. Following his years at the prep school, Donatine was enrolled in a military academy, after which he entered into military service. Due to his family connections, he entered as a lieutenant and was soon placed in an elite, special forces unit. He left the military after eight years holding the rank of captain, and at that time married a woman from a socially prominent family. She would serve as his accomplice in many of his subsequent crimes, and his new mother-in-law would actively work to free him from various legal entanglements. His first arrest came some ten days after a violent sexual assault on a woman. He is said to have raped her with a religious icon, and likely to have whipped her as well. For this, he served less than three weeks in jail. Shortly thereafter, he went to live in a secluded, fortified family estate that had at one time served as a jail. Within a year or two of his arrival, he had built a secret room. He also hosted frequent parties that were notable for featuring what were euphemistically dubbed orgies. These parties were attended by various members of the ruling elite and the clergy, including Donatine's aforementioned uncle. Within a few years of taking up residence in the estate, Francois was once again arrested. Once again he had violently assaulted a young woman, on Easter Sunday, forcing her to strip and then binding her, sexually assaulting her and whipping her with a cat o' nine tails. He then left her locked up, but she was able to escape out a window. She was found running from the estate half naked and covered in her own blood. For that assault, Francois served just four months before being once again released. Shortly thereafter, Donatine rejoined the military, elevated to the rank of colonel despite his criminal past. It was not long before he once again ran afoul of the law. Francois and a male accomplice reportedly engaged the services of four prostitutes, as well as the services of each other. There was, of course, the requisite whipping involved. Following the encounter, the women became violently ill and grew convinced that they had been poisoned. When police went to arrest Donatine and his accomplice, they found that someone had tipped them off to the impending arrest and the men had fled. By the end of the year, however, Donatine was in custody, and he once again served prison time. He escaped, however, after less than five months, curiously leaving behind a note claiming full credit for engineering the escape and explicitly clearing his captors of any culpability. Strangely enough, the escape occurred on, of all days, April 30th, Walpurgisnacht. In short order, Francois was back at the family estate, with authorities making occasional raids on the compound in an alleged attempt to arrest the escaped convict. His activities, meanwhile, grew increasingly disturbing. Shortly after his return, he began staging what some accounts refer to euphemistically as extended orgies. That hardly seems a fair description of what occurred, however, since some of the participants were young boys and girls being held at the estate, many of whom had been abducted. The victims were abused continuously for several weeks. Assisted by his wife and at least three other adults, Francois inflicted all manner of torture and sexual abuse on the victims. Whipping was a preferred means of torture, along with burning with heated implements. Donatine also had a fondness for sodomizing his victims and for forcing them to eat excrement, which he himself indulged in as well. Despite the gravity of his crimes, legal action was not immediately taken. It was several months before police finally raided the estate in search of the escaped convict, kidnapper, torturer, rapist, and pedophile. Though the suspect was reportedly hiding in the estate, his pursuers failed to locate him. 
A little more than a year later, he was still free and was back at the property, accompanied by a number of young women and girls procured for him by a member of the clergy. A few months later, he was finally arrested and imprisoned, but he quickly escaped once again, only to be recaptured a month later. Following his recapture, he remained in prison for 13 years, during which time he wrote prolifically of his fascination with torture, coprophilia, pedophilia, and various other depravities. Amazingly enough, just two years after his release he held political office. A decade later, he was confined to a mental institution, where he spent the last 12 years of his life once again writing of rape, torture and murder. After his death at the age of 74, his oldest son burned most of his writings, though some survived. Donatine's full regal title was Donatine Alphonse Francois, Comte de Chaudet, but he is better known as the Marquis de Sade. His crimes were committed over 200 years ago, around the time that America was declaring its independence. Yet even as these words are being written, he is being revived and rehabilitated on America's movie screens. The Encyclopedia Britannica provides the following assessment of the Marquis, de Chaudé is to summon incarnation of absolute evil who advocates the unleashing of instincts even to the point of crime. Others have looked upon him as a champion of total liberation through the satisfaction of his desires in all forms. Virtually those same words have been used to eulogize such other notorious figures as Aleister Crowley and Anton Lavey, both of whose later musings echoed the writings of the Marquis. Perhaps the most cogent analysis of those writings was provided by Alex Steiner, a contributor to the World Socialist website. Steiner noted that the clearest formulation of de Chaudet's philosophy appears in his philosophy in the bedroom, which features a philosophical interlude. Within that interlude lies a philosophical defense, argued in the language of the Enlightenment, but not of course, in the spirit of the Enlightenment, that presents a justification for incest, rape, murder and cruelty. That interlude is said to have been published separately in 1848, under the title, Yet Another Effort, Frenchmen, If You Would Become Republicans, it was intended for distribution as a political manifesto. Among other things, the tract contained a defense of murder as a legitimate civil activity used to weed out the weaker members of society. Steiner also noted that writer and film director Pier Paolo Pasolini saw in De Chaudé the antecedents of fascism. One of the defining characteristics of de Chaudet's philosophy was his view of society as composed of atomistic individuals potentially engaged in a war of all against all, which is, of course, precisely the direction in which Western society is being driven. Perhaps the most revealing passage in Steiner's piece reads as follows, de Chaudet's state of nature is a veritable hell on earth. Perhaps de Chaudet's alleged Satanism is an appropriate metaphor of his philosophy. It could be reasonably argued that Satanism was more than just a metaphor of de Chaudet's philosophy, it was his philosophy. As Steiner notes, de Chaudet is unwilling to allow any restraints on his ability to exploit, mistreat and even destroy other human beings in the pursuit of pleasure. That same notion is now the mantra of modern Satanists, expressed by Crowley and others as, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Quote dot. Chade only had one occupation in his long life which really absorbed him, that of enumerating to the point of exhaustion the possibilities of destroying human life, of destroying them and of enjoying the thought of their death and suffering. French writer Georges Bataille More than three centuries before the birth of de Chade, another Frenchman was providing a blueprint for the Marquis to later follow. Born in 1406 in the Black Tower of his family's castle at Champtos, Giles de Raïs was the eldest son of one of the wealthiest men in all of France, Guy de Raïs. 
Giles' mother was Marie de Crayon, the daughter of Jean de Crayon, who was also one of the wealthiest and most politically powerful men in the country. In 1415, Guy de Raiz was reportedly gored to death by a boar while hunting. That same year, Giles' mother died as well, as did her brother, Amori de Crayon, who was slain in the legendary battle at Agincourt. As Amori had been Jean de Crayon's only son, the rapid succession of deaths left young Giles de Raiz as the sole heir to both the de Raiz and the de Crayon family fortunes. In 1420, Giles kidnapped and then married his cousin, Catherine de Thors, whose family had vast land holdings adjacent to the properties owned by the de Raiz and de Crayon families. At just 16 years of age, Giles de Raiz stood poised to become the wealthiest man in France, by some accounts, possibly the richest man in all of Europe. Following the death of his parents, Giles was raised by his grandfather, Jean de Crayon, and was trained as a knight and a soldier. By 1429, he had been named the Marshal of France, making him the highest-ranking military figure in the country, roughly equivalent to the post today of Secretary of Defense. Serving alongside of him was someone who is now regarded as the patron saint of France, Joan of Arc. Joan was said to hear voices in her head, not unlike numerous others whose stories have filled the pages of this book. She also reportedly had visions, which she apparently attributed to divine guidance. Traveling with a 10,000-man army and accompanied by her general and advisor, Giles de Raiz, Joan was credited with saving France by lifting the Siege of Orleans, a crucial battle in the Hundred Years' War between France and England. Shortly after that, Giles was given the honor of personally crowning France's new king, Charles VII. Joan of Arc sat at the new king's side during the coronation. Joan's fortunes turned quickly, however, she was captured by the Duke of Burgundy the next year and accused by the Brits of heresy and sorcery. She was burned at the stake on May 30, 1431. The next year, de Raiz ended his public career and retired, along with his entourage, to a family castle at Machecol, which was just one of five lavish country estates that Giles then owned. The arrival of Machecol's new residence was accompanied almost immediately by the disappearances of local children. The first child was abducted in 1432 by Giles de Sill, a cousin of Giles de Raiz. The kidnappings continued, uninterrupted, for nearly a decade. The victims were taken to the de Raiz castle where they were brutally and ritualistically slaughtered by Giles and his accomplices. As the years went by, the list of those accomplices grew, numbering both men and women. Among his more notorious accomplices were Roger de Brickville, another cousin, and a woman named Perrine Martin, who was also known as La Mefre, or The Terror. Another known accomplice was a man named Etienne Corio, who was also known as Poito. He was, apparently, initially brought to the castle as a victim, but he was spared for unknown reasons. The rest of the abductees were not so lucky. At the hands of de Raiz and his numerous accomplices, they were subjected to torture, rape and sadistic mutilation. Giles took great pleasure in watching his victims die, frequently raping them or masturbating on them as they were in their death throes. Giles was also deeply involved in occultism, necromancy and alchemy. Many of the child victims' dismembered and disemboweled body parts were reportedly used in rituals that were aimed at summoning demons. Some reports hold that the blood of some of the victims was used to write a book of spells and incantations. De Raiz's fatal mistake was apparently the kidnapping of a priest. The church had been aware for years of the recurrent hushed reports of abducted children, but had chosen to ignore them. It was common knowledge among the townspeople that the missing children had been tortured and killed, but they were powerless to voice their accusations against the unfathomably wealthy and powerful Giles de Raiz.
1440, the accusations were finally made public by the church. Giles de Sill and Roger de Brickville promptly disappeared into one of history's black holes. On September 14, arrest warrants were issued for de Raiz and several of his remaining cohorts. On October 13, 1440, de Raiz was indicted on 34 counts of murder, sodomy and heresy. The indictment held that 140 children had been abducted over the course of 14 years. Many historians have denied that the killings began that early, primarily because acknowledging that to be the case would necessitate a re-evaluation of the revered Joan of Arc. There is considerable debate about the number of victims as well. Some accounts claim that the figure of 140 is grossly inflated. Others, however, contend that the actual victim count was somewhere between 200 and 800. The true number is, most likely, forever lost to history. According to one account, the dismembered remains of 50 children were found in the tower at the Machekel Castle, and a similar number were discovered at another of the Darais estates. An untold number of other victims had apparently been cremated. Darais confessed to many of his crimes, but he steadfastly refused to admit to the charge of heresy. Both he and the church apparently felt that heresy was a more serious offense than sadistically murdering scores of what were, after all, peasant children. Giles ultimately did confess to all of his crimes, either due to the threat of, or the actual application of, torture, depending on which account one chooses to believe. On October 26, he was sent to the gallows and executed. Giles de Raiz reportedly claimed that he had patterned his life after Caligula, the notoriously depraved Roman emperor. He is said by some to have provided the inspiration for the mythical Bluebeard. He also, needless to say, provided the inspiration for countless others who have followed in his footsteps. I'm no psycho. I have a good mind. Howard Unruh, responding to a query from an arresting officer. Long before, spree, killers became a fixture of American society, terrorizing the nation's schools and workplaces, there was Howard Unruh. Howard was, like the other young men of his generation, drafted by the United States Army and sent off to war. He was trained to kill, and he apparently performed that task quite well as a machine gunner. It was later discovered that he had kept a diary of his war experiences. All of his kills were carefully recorded, complete with the date, time and place of each killing. Most importantly, Howard included a detailed description of how each of his victims looked in death. He received a number of commendations for his exemplary service. After returning from the war, he grew increasingly estranged from his parents, with whom he was living. He eventually became something of a recluse, spending much of his time indulging in a hobby he had acquired in the army, collecting, admiring and practicing with various lethal weapons. Then one day, Howard Unruh just sort of went off. Armed with a 9mm handgun and a backup weapon, he took a brisk stroll through downtown Camden, New Jersey, along the way shooting 16 people, 13 of whom died instantly. He proved to be a remarkably efficient assassin, robotically shooting most of his victims twice, once in the head and once in the torso. He walked door to door, from a cobbler shop to a barber shop, then to a pharmacy and finally to a tailor. He killed almost everyone he encountered and reportedly remained expressionless throughout the rampage. His youngest victim was just three years old. Running low on ammunition, Unruh soon retreated to his house. His entire killing spree had lasted just 12 minutes. No sooner was he back home than a local reporter phoned the house. What followed was what J. Robert Nash described as one of the strangest phone conversations in the annals of crime. Unruh, hello, Philip Buxton, is this Howard? Unruh, yes, this is Howard. What is the last name of the party you want? 
Buxton, Unruh. Unruh, who are you and what do you want? Buxton, I'm a friend and I want to know what they're doing to you. Unruh, well, they haven't done anything to me yet but I'm doing plenty to them. Buxton, how many have you killed? Unruh, I don't know yet, I haven't counted them, but it looks like a pretty good score. Buxton, why are you killing people, Howard? Unruh, pause, I don't know. I can't answer that yet, I am too busy. I'll have to talk to you later. With his house surrounded by dozens of armed officers, Howard Unruh walked out and calmly gave himself up. He never faced trial for the killings. Instead, he was declared incurably insane and committed to the New Jersey State Mental Hospital for a life term. According to recent reports, he is still there, more than half a century later. For the highest spiritual working, one must accordingly choose that victim which contains the greatest and purest force. A male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory and suitable victim. Alistair Crowley, Magic in Theory and Practice Before John Bonet Ramsey, there was the eaglet, otherwise known as Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. His mother was Anne Morrow Lindbergh, born on the summer solstice to Dwight Morrow, U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, one-time partner at J.P. Morgan, and close associate of OSS director and MK Ultra operative, Wild Bill, Donovan. His father, of course, was famed aviator Charles Augustus Lindbergh, not to be confused with Richard Speck's stepfather, Carl August Lindbergh. Lindbergh's father, in turn, was a prominent attorney and United States congressman also named Charles Augustus Lindbergh, and his grandfather had been a member of the Swedish parliament before moving the family to the United States in 1860. Charles's mother was Evangeline Land, a daughter of Dr. Charles Land. The Lands, like the Lindberghs, Moros, and Donovans, were closely tied to the American intelligence infrastructure. Dr. Edwin Land later was the driving force behind the U-2 spy plane project and the chairman of an intelligence subcommittee. He also founded the Scientific Engineering Institute, which served as one of the major funding conduits for MKUltra projects. In 1905, Charles and Evangeline's family farmhouse burned down and the couple thereafter lived apart, although they remained married. Charles Sr. was soon inaugurated as a U.S. congressman. The junior Charles remained with his mother, and for the rest of his childhood, Evangeline kept him away from others. She was so hated by the local townspeople that on at least one occasion, shots were reportedly fired at her and her son. Fascinated with both guns and aviation, Charles joined the Army Air Corps in 1924. Three years later, he made his famed transatlantic <coughs> flight and instantly became an international celebrity. After touring the country and basking in the mass adulation, as well as picking up a Congressional Medal of Honor, Lindbergh stayed at the opulent Guggenheim estate where he passed the time with such notables as John D. Rockefeller Jr., Herbert Hoover, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., and Dwight Morrow. By December 1927, Morrow had introduced Charles to his daughter Anne. Reportedly engaged after just three dates, the couple was married in May 1929. Just over a year later, on the summer solstice of 1930, yet another Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born. Around that same time, Charles began working at the Rockefeller Institute in New York alongside Alexis Carl, the eugenics-minded researcher who openly called for the mass extermination of the unfit. Lindbergh chroniclers Algren and Monier described Carl as a strange individual who wore a black hooded robe in the laboratory and insisted that all of his lab assistants do the same. Lindbergh also acquired a plane to use for survey flights, which he christened the Sirius, so named for the brightest star in the night sky, located in the constellation Canis Major. 
Also known as the dog star, it is believed by some occultists to represent Lucifer, the light bearer, or enlightened one. On March 1, 1932, the eaglet disappeared from the Lindbergh family home, a rambling, newly built, two-story mansion in Hopewell, New Jersey. According to American popular mythology, the child was kidnapped from the isolated, remote and occupied home. The facts of the case have never supported that notion. Any kidnapper would have had to know the exact location of the child's second story room and would have had to know that the shutters on the window of that particular room were the only ones on the house that did not properly latch. It would have also helped to know that Charles Lindbergh had ordered that the child not be disturbed before 10 p.m. that evening and that there would therefore be little risk of discovery by any of the five adults who were moving freely about the house that evening. The kidnapper would have had to enter a well-lit home that was owned by a man with a known penchant for firearms, and do so without alarming an extremely high-strung dog that was known to bark at the slightest provocation, but that nevertheless never barked that entire evening. The kidnapper would further have had to know that the Lindberghs were going to be home that night, since it was not their custom to stay at the house during the week. Other than on weekends, the family could usually be found at Next Day Hill, the country estate of the Morrow family in Englewood, New Jersey. Charles Lindbergh had requested an unusual deviation from the normal family routine, just as he had requested that no one enter his son's room that evening. Upon discovering that the child was missing, Lucky Lindy immediately declared that there had been a kidnapping, before making any effort to search the house and before the discovery of an alleged ransom note. Anne Lindbergh's first thought was that Charles had done something with the boy. The child's nursemaid, Betty Gow, drew the same conclusion. That was in part due to Charles having staged a fake abduction just two months prior, by hiding the child in a closet for 20 minutes and announcing a kidnapping while the household panicked. This time, however, Charles produced a ransom note, which he claimed he found on the windowsill of the nursery, after the room had already been thoroughly searched by Anne, Betty, and another family servant, Elsie Whatley. Charles Lindbergh promptly made a series of phone calls. The first was to his friend and attorney, Colonel Henry Breckenridge, a former assistant secretary of war. The next was to Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf, another friend and the head of the New Jersey State Police, a law enforcement agency designed and run as a military entity. The third was to Colonel William Wild Bill Donovan. All three colonels joined in the investigation. Breckenridge brought along Robert Thayer, a known associate of various organized crime figures. Thayer, who was married to a standard oil heiress, was later identified as a CIA agent working under State Department cover. To ensure that there were enough intelligence operatives in the mix, Admiral Emery S. Land later became peripherally involved in the investigation as well. Lindbergh appeared calm, cool and collected to police arriving at the scene, and he immediately took command of the investigation, in conjunction with Colonel Schwarzkopf. The Colonel's State Police badly mishandled the investigation right from the start by failing to secure the crime scene, which compromised every piece of potential evidence in sight. They did though quickly set up a command post in the Lindbergh's garage, bring in extra phone lines, and begin a full-scale media circus that possibly topped even the Ramsey spectacle. Before long, reporters were allowed to join with the police in freely trampling over potential evidence. The only piece of evidence that does appear to have been gathered was a crudely constructed ladder that allegedly was used to enter the second-story window of the Lindbergh child's room. The room itself yielded no evidence whatsoever. As Trooper on the scene exclaimed, after the room had been thoroughly dusted for fingerprints, I'm damned if I don't think somebody washed everything in that nursery before the printman got there. The investigation essentially went nowhere for the next several weeks. 
The only major development was that Lindbergh enlisted the services of a number of organized crime figures, ostensibly to assist in solving the crime and locating the child. Lindy even attempted to secure the release from prison of the notorious Al Scarface Capone. On May 12, 1932, the mutilated and decomposed corpse of a child was found less than three miles from the Lindbergh home. The body was discovered in a remote location where there was only one building nearby, a Catholic orphanage directly across the road. The corpse's left leg was missing below the knee, as was the left hand, right arm, and most of the internal organs. A ludicrously inept autopsy was promptly performed on the body. Although it was claimed at the time that the examination was performed by Dr. Charles Mitchell, it was actually the work of funeral home director Walter Swayze, who was entirely unqualified for the task. That fact was kept covered up for some 45 years. The cause of death, if the autopsy report is to be believed, was from a blow to the head. Though no photographs were taken of the skull during the examination, it was claimed that there was evidence of a fracture and a resultant blood clot, as well as a small round hole in the base of the skull. Charles Lindbergh himself positively identified the body as that of his missing child. His daughter Reeve later stated, he would have examined the teeth, he would have examined the hair, he would have checked the clothing, any physical evidence, that would have been where he would find relief would have been in the facts. It is unlikely that Lindbergh did any of that. He reportedly was in and out of the morgue in less than 90 seconds. In truth, all he really needed to check was a tape measure. The body that was discovered was 33 inches tall, according to Swayze's autopsy report, whereas the missing Lindbergh child was only 29 inches tall, as listed on the wanted posters distributed around the country. The boy's own physician, who spent more time with the corpse than Lindbergh, was unable to positively identify the remains. The body was most likely not that of the eaglet, and Charles Lindbergh Sr. must surely have been aware of that even as he claimed the dead child as his own and ordered its immediate destruction. Less than 24 hours after being discovered, the body had been cremated and the ashes scattered at sea Anne Lindbergh would later say that she never saw Charles shed a tear for the slain boy. As the investigation progressed, a number of people connected to the disappearance met with untimely deaths or otherwise dropped out of sight. The Morrow family maid, Violet Sharp, allegedly killed herself with cyanide just before a visit from the head of the state police in June 1932. Schwarzkopf claimed that he found her dead upon his arrival. He had been, by most accounts, relentlessly and unconscionably harassing the woman. A German-born gardener, Henry Leopold, who was at one time considered a suspect and who one handwriting expert thought was the author of the ransom note, allegedly killed himself in October 1933. Oliver Whitley, another household servant and potential witness, died of unspecified causes before the case made it to trial. And Betty Gow's boyfriend, Red Johnson, was held by police, without being charged, for 18 days before he was shipped off to Norway, never to be heard from again. Johnson had worked for a business partner of Dwight Morrow. On September 19, 1934, German immigrant Bruno Richard Hauptmann was arrested and charged with the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby. After being held without access to an attorney, deprived of sleep, and unmercifully beaten, all in an effort to extract a bogus confession, Hauptmann was put in a police lineup alongside two burly Irish cops, one of them still in uniform. He was positively identified. Schwarzkopf's New Jersey State Police promptly moved Hauptmann's wife out of their home, assumed the lease, and moved in. By all appearances, they then proceeded to manufacture and plant evidence. 
A week after Hauptmann's arrest, an officer living in his former home discovered that the ladder found at the Lindbergh home had been partially constructed from a floorboard allegedly missing from the attic of the Hauptmann home. The trial of Richard Hauptmann was, even relative to the standards established by other trials discussed in this book, a ridiculously transparent sham. Virtually everyone who has studied the case, including those who believe that Hauptmann was guilty, acknowledge that the defense case that was presented was hopelessly inept. Hauptmann's attorney, Edward J. Riley, who was provided for him by the New York Daily Mirror, had only one 15-minute private conference with his client throughout the entire trial. He was visibly inebriated during much of the proceedings. He was also reportedly supplied with a steady stream of attractive young prostitutes throughout the trial. Even had Riley been motivated to win the case, it would have been an uphill battle. No deposition of witnesses was allowed and no discovery evidence was turned over by the state. The prosecution's case was kept completely under wraps until it was revealed at trial, making it impossible to plan a defense. A number of the witnesses called by the state gave obviously perjured testimony that was completely at odds with both prior statements to police and prior testimony before a grand jury. One such witness was Charles Lindbergh himself, who was, amazingly enough, allowed to sit at the prosecution table throughout the trial, packing a loaded handgun in a shoulder holster. Transcripts of the trial reveal a painfully obvious bias displayed by the judge, who distinguished himself by routinely overruling all defense objections and just as routinely sustaining all prosecution objections. He also openly mocked the case presented by the defense in his final summation to the jury. Despite the obviously stacked deck, however, the defense could have introduced enough reasonable doubt to win an acquittal had the identification of the child's body been challenged. It was not, however, and Hauptmann was quickly found guilty and sentenced to die. Just two weeks after the guilty verdict was rendered, defense attorney Riley suffered a complete nervous breakdown. He was quickly shuffled off to a Brooklyn mental hospital in a straitjacket. Just a few weeks later, he was back in action as though nothing had happened. Appeals of the conviction were summarily denied, the final denial coming from the U.S. Supreme Court on December 9, 1935. New Jersey Governor Hoffman, however, was resisting the wholesale fraud being perpetrated. He openly accused both Schwarzkopf's team and the prosecution team of fabricating evidence, particularly the latter, and he announced his intention to go to the Board of Pardons on Hauptmann's behalf. In the wake of that announcement, the Lindberghs fled the country bound for the United Kingdom. Hauptmann was executed three and a half months later at the state prison in Trenton, New Jersey. Lindbergh soon wound up in Nazi Germany, where he developed close ties to the Nazi elite, particularly Luftwaffe chief Hermann Goering. He also became a mouthpiece for virulently anti-Semitic, pro-Nazi propaganda. It was mentioned previously that the Lindberghs immigrated to America from Sweden in 1860. It was at that time that Lindy's grandfather opted to change the family name. Had he not done so, one of America's greatest folk heroes, Charles Lindbergh, would likely have had a much different name, although one perhaps no less well-known, Charles Manson. Epilogue. I need not look beyond this courtroom to see all the liars, the haters, the killers, the crooks, the paranoid cowards, we are all expendable for a cause. No one knows that better than those who kill for policy, clandestinely or openly, as do the governments of the world which kill in the name of God and country, Richard, the Night Stalker, Ramirez, addressing the court. Jean Bedell Bacasa was, like all Western-supported, third-world dictators, a fascist thug who allowed his country's rich natural resources to be ruthlessly exploited while his countrymen starved. 
Under his rule, the Central African Republic, a French satellite, was one of the 20 poorest countries in the world. Bacasta was reportedly orphaned at the age of six, when his father was murdered and his mother allegedly committed suicide just a week later. At the age of 18, he joined the French colonial army and served throughout World War XI. He remained in the army after the war and later served in the First Indochina War, a.k.a. Vietnam, and then in Algeria, two of the bloodiest and most brutal colonial occupations in recorded history. In 1961, Jean Bidel left the French army holding the rank of captain. A few years later, he was appointed by his cousin, President David Daco, to head the army of the Central African Republic. Just one year after taking the post, he took control of the country from his cousin. Lieutenant Call. Bacasa assumed the presidency on January 1, 1966, four months before the reputed commencement of the Age of Satan. By December 1977, Bacasa had decided that president was not a lofty enough title, so he declared himself Emperor Bacasa I of the re-christened Central African Empire. As the country's self-appointed dictator, he had a very close relationship with French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. The two leaders were frequently photographed together and Giscard was reported to have several relatives in positions of influence in the Bacasa regime and within the empire's business community. In May 1979, it was reported that Bacasa had personally ordered the massacre of 100, more, by some reports, schoolchildren. The children had been suffocated, stabbed, and beaten with nail-studded clubs. Some eyewitnesses to the carnage claimed that the emperor himself had not only personally killed nearly 40 of the victims, but had cannibalized them as well. The Bacasa regime, of course, denied the reports. The atrocity was confirmed though by Amnesty International, and in August 1979, a five-nation team assembled to investigate the incident determined that Emperor Bacasa was indeed personally responsible. Bacasa responded by ordering the executions of 40 witnesses who had offered testimony to the investigating board. The next month, Bacasa was overthrown in what was described as a coup. In truth, it was merely a quick facelift to ward off the popular uprising that was brewing in the wake of the revelations. The coup merely put Bacasa's cousin back in power. French troops were on hand to oversee the transition. Bacasa fled the country, taking with him hundreds of millions of dollars looted from the national treasury, and ultimately settled in France. He had, however, left a few things behind. As the Associated Press later reported, prosecutors at his trial noted, Bacasta's old palace was filled with evidence of atrocities, including the frozen body of a schoolteacher hanging on a freezer hook and mounds of human flesh prepared for roasting. Other evidence of atrocities included, according to author Janet Street Porter, a Dahmer-esque refrigerator full of butchered human remains and a crocodile pond on the palace grounds that contained the partial remains of some 40 additional bodies. Bacasa's former cook testified at trial that he had regularly served up dishes prepared from human flesh and that Bacasa had consumed them with relish. The Associated Press reported that Bacasa enjoyed serving up his critics and political enemies at state dinners honoring visiting dignitaries and heads of state. It has been claimed that at Bacasa's coronation as emperor, an ostentatious affair financed by the French government to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, guests unknowingly dined on human flesh. After eight years of exile, Bacasa returned to his homeland in 1987, despite the fact that he had been sentenced to death in absentia. He was arrested, tried, convicted, and once again sentenced to death, but the sentence was shortly thereafter commuted to a 20-year prison sentence. In 1993, Bacasa was granted amnesty and he walked away a free man, returning to his home village of Barango. 
On November 3, 1996, he died of a heart attack at the age of 75 and was given an official state funeral befitting a former president. How then are we to remember Jean Bidel Bacasa? As a respected head of state, or as a cannibalistic serial killer? Or is there any difference?